This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right. <laughs> welcome to another edition, the 43rd edition. Hey, Dr. Carr. Uh, Happy Kwanzaa. Happy, happy Kwanzaa. Happy. This is Habari Ghani. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I was thinking yesterday was kind of, you You posted this whole thing about the, you know, the non-white woman with the baby and the fiance. And, you know, I, I feel like I don't want to crap on Christmas, but. Never. Never. No, never want to crap on Christmas because we all have our traditions. And I spent it, you know, watching Shonda Rhimes's, uh <laughs> her Bridget, Bridgerton. So we're gonna talk a little bit of look, just a little. I just, I just want to support the sister. I watched a little bit of Soul, which is amazing. Pixar and jazz and art is just beautiful, beautifully shot, beautifully done. That's uh, the Jamie Foxx joint. Yeah, and I and I started watching Wonder Woman and I cut it off because it was. I, I ain't gonna talk about it, but we not we not doing that. Not today. Not today. But last her theme, night, her theme is the best theme in the DC. Uh, universe in terms of the music. <laughs> what a waste. Anyway, hey, Shonda Rhimes, I, 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 I did 15 minutes of it just so I could okay. say I saw. Uh, it's, not yeah. it's, car, it's not for you. It's a soap opera. You know, it's it's it's. Oh, no, I don't mind soap opera and I like period pieces. I mean, there's alchemy and period pieces, you know, but, you know, I've kind of felt about I feel about it. I think I'm going to feel about it the way I feel about Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld is cool till you start putting black people in it. Or Curb Your Enthusiasm is cool till you start putting black people in it. In other words, don't do not do that. Because you just keep it, stay in, you know. Stay in your lane. Stay in your white lane. Okay. We're going to talk about that. But I, I last, you, you dropped something about the winter solstice. And then this whole uh, soul, S-O-U-L, solstice thing started trending. And people thought they were going to get superpowers. There was this thing. So I was like, let's come back to the winter solstice because you messed me up when you were talking about the calendar and how we've all agreed to a lie. All of us. It's 2020 because somebody sat in a room with a bunch of other people and determined that this was going to be our origin point and it's not our origin point. But we got to deal with that. And then I want to talk about Kwanzaa. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, what is the origin? I mean, if we think about it, is there really an origin as such. I mean, you know, the like we talked about last week, the, the human capacity to comprehend reality, you know, we have limits. We're going to push against them. That's the nature of life, to continue to push against those limits. But pushing against them, you know, kind of declares or observes that there are limits. And so when we think about time and space, they exist independent of us. You know, we think about narrative. Narrative is really the way that we give ourselves meaning in the world. And so, you know, look look at this seven day week we observe. You know, I mean, you know, we got a we got a Sunday and a Monday. One name for the sun, one name for the moon. Everything else is named for European uh, gods. I mean, Tuesday is is a riff, a German riff on uh, on Mars. Right. Talk about Wonder Woman. No, it was Aries. She was fighting, which I guess is Mars in the Roman because the Romans conquered them. Right. Wednesday is 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 a German gloss on Odin. And then Thursday, of course, is Odin's son, Thor. And then you get the, the Roman Venus coming up, which is the German frigga, which is Friday. And so and here we are on Saturday, which is Saturn, which is the Saturnalia, which is what they would normally celebrate in these Roman uh, ritual cultures, pre-Christian. Saturnalia is a harvest God, meaning what? 
really Christmas, which is in many ways the Roman Empire's attempt to absorb those pre-Christian rituals so that they can get the people to march in line with this new civil state religion after they offed Christ. They turn around a couple of centuries, several centuries later and say, we'll make it the state religion. But in order to do that, they're going to incorporate a lot of the rituals that the people were doing before Christianity. And a lot of those rituals are uh, rebirth rituals. They're rituals uh, which are uh, which would be clustered from roughly speaking, I guess, on this calendar we're doing now, December 14th through the 21st. I guess would be the Saturnalia because of course it, it, it dovetails into the solstice, which is the shortest day of the year, meaning the sun is out the shortest length of time. And once we cross the 21st of December in the Northern hemisphere, the days starting get start getting longer. It's kind of a, a rebirth moment. And so, you know, what is real? It's all narrative. It's all stories made to regulate time and space. Can't hear you. All right. Also, it's the longest day in Africa. Southern Hemisphere, no question. Well, below the equator. Yeah. Right. So who's right? Everybody. Okay. Well, I mean, or well, everybody until until somebody get hurt. <laughs> everybody until somebody get hurt. I mean, you know, it's funny. Many years ago when I was in graduate school. In, in in Philly. I remember turning on C-SPAN one afternoon and uh, Bill Cosby was giving a talk uh, in Crampton Auditorium on the campus of Howard University. And I often refer to that talk uh, to my students at Howard when we get into conversations about narrative, about language and power. And one of the things Cosby said was, he said, uh, you know, he was kind of trying to make a larger point, but he said, you know, I'm not against people speaking Ebonics. Hell, I speak Ebonics. He said, but you know what a language is? A language is a dialect with an army and a navy. I mean, in other words, do you have the power to impose your worldview, your sense of the world on other people who don't share your sense of the world? And this is a, this is a serious question when it comes to whether or not you're impending impinging on people's life chances, not just as individuals, but as groups of individuals. I mean, yeah. And yesterday, you know, I'm playing around Christmas. You know, everybody happy, happy, merry, merry holidays, whatever you celebrate, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, whatever. You know, Saturnalia. I mean, it didn't matter. But you know, the simple fact of the matter is that when we start trying to think of Jesus of Nazareth as a historical figure, now we got a problem. And my old professor, uh, Theophilo Benga, used to say, you know, he, he would think of the world in three kind of categories in terms of knowledge. He said, you got knowledge by faith. I believe it. That settles it. I got knowledge by opinion. This is how I feel. This is my perspective. You don't have to agree with me. We don't have to agree. We can agree to disagree. We can argue, whatever. And he got knowledge by what he would say, knowledge by reason or knowledge by fact. This happened. But once you move Christ into a historical category, then that's when the fight starts. You're looking for archaeological evidence, you're looking for sources. But if you're going to do that, then you know, do it. In other words, we know it wasn't white, we know they hit out in Northeast Africa, we know that the mother and father, Mary and Joseph, however you want to categorize uh, um, um, Immaculate Conception, because 
you know, for the original story that that story comes out of the Egyptian story. I mean, they'll say some people say it's a Babylonian gloss and other. Yeah, but I'm gonna go with the Egyptian until I see definitive evidence. Otherwise, as Martin Bernal says in the first volume of Black Athena, you know, it's competitively plausible. I don't see anything displaced that that, that comedic story. Immaculate conception just means that you followed the steps you were supposed to follow to conceive the child. But at any rate, uh, we know they showed up to get the census, get their census done and pay their taxes. We know they had the baby in an animal shelter. And we know that the Romans were looking for the firstborns to offer them. If we're going to go with the historical, if we're going to say this is historical, accurately, historically accurate. And then we know that roughly speaking, a little over a third of a century, a third of a century later, roughly around 32, 33 years later, if we're going to go with this as a historical record, this guy, Jesus, you know, Nazareth, Nazareth, Jesus is going to end up being executed by the government. He's he's dimed out by his boy, Judas. You know, I mean, he's stretched and, you know, the people say, give me the robber instead of him. And Pilate tries to wash his hands. The soldiers, you know, stab him, whatever, gamble over his stuff, take his robe, whatever. And then he is executed, put to death on their version of the electric chair at the time, the cross. And of course, then uh, he is buried. And then, of course, that's when it gets a little sketchy because the people who say uh, that he was arisen aren't the ones who saw him. It was the lady, right? Who said, yeah, I saw her. the tomb and they went and the rock was rolled away. So they took her word for it, I guess. Now all this gets written down centuries after it happened. You can imagine what they're going to do with Martin Luther King 300 years from now. So <laughs> I mean, he waved his hand and the dogs laid down and the fire hoses went limp and he walked across the reflecting pool and ascended into, I mean, you can imagine, but I'm saying I have to say that this is only a problem if we move from the faith or opinion category into the fact category or the reason category, as long as it stays in the in the faith category, everybody tell your story. You tell your story. You sing your song until somebody gets hurt. Now, if you're going to stick that song or that story on the end of a pole and wave it at somebody and start singing on with Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Now we got a problem. <laughs> now we got a problem because. I don't believe what you believe. You gonna try to punish me? And it and one thing is clear: whatever happened two thousand and twenty years ago, ostensibly, between then and now, has resulted in you and I having this conversation in English. And they late to the game. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And worried about blackness and talking about Black Lives Matter and all, Christ, European Christianity. And I make a distinction between European Christianity and the, the roots of Christianity, because the roots of Christianity, just like the roots of Judaism, just like the roots of Islam, are not European. European Christianity, which is basically uh, the various peoples of Europe over centuries coming to some consensus on how they're going to narrate this thing, becomes the one of the, the kind of anchoring ways of knowing to use our Africana studies methodology. Again, we, we have these six categories that we, 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 we're playing with in Africana studies for two reasons. Number one, it allows us to think uh, about people of African descent as fully human in the world without getting in any arguments. And the other reason is because these categories apply to everybody. So these European ways of knowing that we kind of cluster around the notion of Christianity become a rationale for reducing as the Pope told Spain and Portugal as they went out sailing west to go uh, take other people's land, you are now both authorized to reduce to servitude all infidel peoples. 
We think infidel, we think Islam, but you should think Christianity too. They're going out to subjugate other people to their worldview and to use those people to build their, what becomes the modern world system. So, I mean, what is true, what is not, it really depends on your perspective and it's all good until somebody get hurt. All right. So, can you hear me? Yeah. I'm going to add myself in. Um, I mean, we could talk a lot, a lot more about details. You sent me back to the books. So no, anyway. I apologize. No, 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 no. Don't apologize. Listen, listen. You, we, when we, when we began this, we were talking about jailbreaking this whole thing, flipping this thing. We know now that as people are getting this vaccine, you know, Fauci is finally having to. He can say out loud what he's been thinking all along. Yeah, it's going to take like 90 percent to get, you know, some form of herd immunity. So, so, I mean, it's going to be longer, but we said, you know, we're not going back to the world as it was. And so what appears to be breaks between semesters, really, in, you know, in my imagination, I think in your imagination, all of us who are teachers, this should be what we do all the time. If this is indeed our craft, there's a way to do that. We don't, we're not going back to the kind of assembly line stuff that wasn't working anyway. So you, you and I have had this conversation off mic, which is the genesis of this. Yes. Um, and as we move forward, you know, I've been looking at a lot of things um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be making some announcements in here because I'm, you know, I feel like, you know, the next level of freedom is ownership. You know, we, we are in here, there's a couple thousand during concurrently, maybe 3,000 concurrently. It'll be 50,000 by the, by the end of, you know, the week, uh, enjoying and taking notes and buying books and, and experiencing this family and being a part of something greater than themselves. I know I'm part of something greater than myself in this space with you, um, but 40, you know, 40% of this energy is going to somebody that didn't create it. How about that? We're going to stop doing that. <laughs> I'm with you. So I'm a person, and you know, and and I didn't know if it was gonna work. I didn't mm-hmm. know if had the appetite. I didn't know if people would want to come on a Saturday and and listen, you know, and talk and think on a Saturday when we are used to what is that? Resting and partying and doing all these other things. We won't have time for that. You no. know, you mentioned um 80, 90% of us are not taking a vaccine. Let's be very clear. Let's be clear. There will not be herd immunity. Mm. Let's be clear. No. And I appreciate you having that conversation during the week, too. That's extremely important for our people to be able to know that they have a valued space. We have a valued space that we can trust to have that honest conversation. Because it's the conversation we're having anyway. So I'm glad you're elevating it to a place. Okay, thank God. I'm not the only one. No question. We ain't doing that. Um, And not because of any, not because of Tuskegee, but we just got to see. All right. Got to see. But what we do know is that the education system is broken. What we do know is that we have been miseducated. Carter G. Wilson talked about that 100 years ago. Yes, he did. And nothing, not much has changed except we've codified the miseducation. That's right. So, you know, I'm grateful that you have the appetite to do this. I'm grateful that you have the experience, the knowledge, the wisdom, the mind, the genius, the ability. Uh, It makes it easy for me to sit back and press that solo view and let you go uh, because it's it's amazing. But but you're not the only one. There are people in this room who do this in their own. You know, I got up this morning. I was watching this woman in Ghana 
talk about building her, you know, she's from Ghana. She was, she was a furniture maker. She's like a model, fashion person, interior de- designer for $45,000 with some material that they throw away in Ghana. She oh, built a home that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. She said, this is my home. I want people to see what the possibilities are. And then I thought, everybody lives somewhere. Why are we all doing this? We don't all have to run to Africa. We live somewhere. Make your place what it needs to be. Education, healthcare, all of that. We have the power to do it. And if they're doing it in Ghana, we can do it here. So, Well, well, if we can, uh, let me see. I was going to say, I was looking at something the other day. There's a dude named Toby Green, what a book called Fistful of Shells on the history of uh, West Africa during the period, West and West Central Africa during the period right before and then during the the the, uh, the enslavement period and uh he's got a small article in a in a journal called history today i don't even know where that is i was looking at it the other day i didn't it wasn't for today but since you oh here it is here it is history today. yeah the price of slavery then and now and uh that's the feature article in this journal and something he said that you just what you just said just struck me when you talked about the sister in Ghana and the fact that everybody lives somewhere. He's making a very important point. In fact, let me see if I can get it. It's called the price of life. There it is. Uh, you know, he says that and we go to the back to the last paragraph in the article. He, he, he when he talks about he says the current African debt crisis is not current. It is historical. <laughs> And it is only by understanding the historical roots of the reasons for the enormity of the crisis on the continent that some of the key issues can be re- addressed. Moratoria on repayments of debt, the rescheduling of loans and the provision of further loans will not resolve the problem. What is required is for the continent as a whole to work together to develop a different approach to the way in which it secures credit, one on which no longer depends on external demand. His point is this. The, and John Henry Clark said this years ago. John Henry Clark, used, he used to say, Africa has always had what other people wanted and didn't want to pay for. And so what, what, what he's saying, what he says in this article and what he's really making the case in much larger case in the book, this came out after his book came out last year, is that the only thing Europe wanted out of Africa was us. So there was no trade relationship. You couldn't, in other words, there was not, there was no, there were no ex, there was no export import relationship. Africa as a continent, the people of Africa, the various different people of Africa are trapped in a debt matrix that is, that is connected to the capitalist world system. In other words, you just pull stuff, pull resources out, including living resources like our ancestors. And and then what do Africans get in exchange? Nothing. Some guns, some beads. Some you know, so you know, we import some stuff, man. And here comes China next. Okay, China, you're gonna get some agriculture stuff going, they're gonna feed themselves, they're gonna go into some trade arrangements. But the the system of credit, the system of capital must depends on having an external market that you own, that you control. And in fact, when we talk about Kwanzaa in a minute, it'll be very interesting because we're gonna see. That by the 1980s, we see that Kwanzaa has caught on in the United States and non-African people and some black people that ain't down with the self-determination dimension, the Kujichagalia dimension, that's day two, that's tomorrow of Kwanzaa, are saying we can make money off this without connecting it to the deeper cultural grounding and values of Kwanzaa. And so you have 
committees, whole groups of people. Uh, Ken Bridges, who was killed by the D.C. sniper uh, here in D.C., who, who had, was part of an organization called Mata. You have Hannibal Afrique and Conrad Worrell and, and those folks in Chicago. You know, the Committee to Preserve the Integrity of Kwanzaa is saying, no, no, these people want to extract profit from us. And here we are in 2020. And you can go into Walmart, wherever you can go online. People don't know nothing about no red, black, and green, no makeka, no zawadi, no gifts. No, they selling what you need. What you need? Some candles. You need a kanara. You need a. You got the language? Yeah, a Ghani. greeting cards, Hallmark. Whoa, wait a minute. The whole point of this made-up holiday, and I make the point that it's a made-up holiday to make the further point that every holiday we have as human beings is made up to, so when you say that's a made up holiday, you ain't saying nothing. The, uh, this is a space that was created to control. So when you start talking about control, we have to I think, be very deadly serious about the fact that control can be limited by our ability to negotiate with this larger system that was built on our backs, built on our labor, that's going to have to be dismantled as the NASDAQ and the Dow soar. And people are very much worried this week. Unemployment about, is expiring today. That's right. And eviction notices and people, you know, and these people out here playing games with people's lives and they saying, but the economy is doing well. Uh-uh. No. No, the stock market is doing well. And that's what happens in a capitalist society. Well, I, we were going to get into um, today history. We yes. lost the great Casey Jones from the mm. South, who I grew up hating, by the way. Uh, of course. You know, I love Dr. J. Uh, I watched him on my little 13-inch black and white television when he played for the Nets with the rabbit ears. I had to put foil on. Uh, <laughs> so that, you know, the Boston Celtics, even with the storied history with Bill Russell and all of the championships and, and a first black man coach, and KC winning those championships, I always hated them because they represented racism to me. Of course. Me too. Then I read a, a, a thread this week um, on his passing by this man who's a brilliant writer. You know him. He's brilliant. And it, it shifted my whole view. So I was going to talk about him today, talk about this thread. I was going to drop the thread in the, in the description. And then I get a DM this morning. Can I ask a question? So I said, yeah. Of course you can ask him. Oh, that's the man right there. He didn't ask Let me tell this man, his brain, his mind, the way he dissects and, and disseminates all of the information is just brilliant. And I was going to, I promise you, I was going to talk about KC today and reference Michael Harriet's thing and I get a DM. So, you know, divine providence is a, is a real thing. It yeah. Well, you know, hey, what's going on, man? I'm great. I'm great. Um, I don't think like some of the people watching don't know that like I'm not just a person who watches you guys every week, but I'll call y'all up and ask a question. Like, <laughs> like I'm not just a fan, but uh, I don't know how I got your number, but like we'll talk. I'll call you. You know, I'll call you up and say, Come on, hey, bro. Man, no there's a bro there's a brother. Uh, I remember there was a guy in New Hampshire, a politician in New Hampshire who was saying that being a slave owner wasn't racist. And of course, like we can easily dismantle that. But I was like, <laughs> let me call Dr. Carr and explain, let him explain to me 
like the history of why they're stupid and you know even though i knew the background you taught me some stuff like i didn't know about dunmore's proclamation until you told me i didn't know i didn't yeah i didn't know i've I'd never i hadn't heard about the book the counter revolution of 1776 yeah. until you told me right so this this these connections that you guys are making is not just valuable to for people who watch but it, it gives you giving people a new source of information and a new way to look at history and i'm one of the people who always looked at history that way but i always like to have it confirmed by people who are scholars well i put you in that category we we are in that category together brother your, your capacity to not only absorb information because that's what that's all we're all doing right. anyway but then to be able to translate it in ways that uh people get i mean it's that point of entry I mean, for example, I mean, and I told you this before, I told you this when you that 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 piece you wrote that folks kind of, you know, set the world on fire with Pete Buttigieg. But when you opened it with the way you had to negotiate getting to school and you, but no, no, you opened it with the number, the number of the money the cats had raised for you, man. We we went through that piece over two classes in education in black America class. I taught when he came out. And the genius of being able, because what it did was people were able to enter from their own personal experiences. And then when you just opened up the playbook and by the time it was over, you had woven a, a history of our people, man, when you start, I mean, you start, I mean, you know, you know, South Carolina, you, you drop Briggs versus Elliot. It's a different thing when a law student is reading the case cold. And another thing when they can have a point of entry from somebody who has absorbed that information and then transformed it. And so when you talk about Dunmore, man, um, you know, it's interesting. I was reading and I don't have you, have you seen this thing, this new Netflix? I only watched a few minutes. This, this, uh, this new period piece with, with the black folks in it. Uh, which one? The, oh, the Shonda Ryan. Ryan. Piece. Yeah. No, I haven't watched it. Okay. I Cause I can't it. wait when you do. Cause I know you're going to write some fire, man. I'll be waiting for you to, <laughs> <laughs> you be blazing. No the reason I ask is because, uh, you know, there's a, oh, there's a scene. I, you know, I only watched about. 30 minutes of the first one. That's about as much as I could take. I mean, fortunately, it's set in the early 17th century. So I don't know how they could figure out how to take the classic music, black music of the 70s and 80s and mess it up by, by laying a foundation for some foolishness and then putting the wrong song underneath. So I'm hoping they won't back map none of the music. But when you mentioned Dunmore, it's very interesting because there's a scene in there where George III's wife, Charlotte of Mecklenburg, uh, Charlotte Sophia, is, is receiving these white women, these youngsters who are going to go get married. And she's telling them basically whether they're pretty or not. And, and the one white girl comes in and she calls her blessed or something and kiss her on the forehead. But this woman is what we would say is black. Now, you know, that might seem controversial. This is a uh, Dr. Stephanie Myers book, Invisible right. Queen, right? And of course, right. Sophia Charlotte, they don't know whether she was black or not, or whether she had black ancestry. But if we think about it, it's probably more than likely she was born in Germany, but that line of her family trait also has Portuguese in it. And Portugal and Spain, of course, on the Iberian Peninsula and the Moors were there for 700 years. In fact, it was a big thing in Europe to say you had a touch of the Moor. And, and the right. portraits, of you, there's so many portraits of her in this book that look black. But I mentioned Dunmore because Dunmore's regiment, Lord Dunmore, 
was the governor, as we know, in Virginia, the Virginia colony. He sets up a camp called Charlotte. Charlotte was known as an abolitionist. She was against uh, enslavement. In fact, there's a cartoon in here that's fascinating. There's a cartoon in here of her uh, and George III not having sugar. Here it is. They don't have sugar in their uh, in their in their tea. And the little thought bubble up there, she's telling these white women, do not put sugar in your tea because the Moors uh, have to grow it, and so therefore, you know, you're helping them. She, Olado Equiano writes her and says, abolish enslavement. And so one of the things in lore is that Dunmore's regiment, of course, which includes black people, he's telling them you'll be free if you if you fight for us, is connected in some ways to the rumor that Charlotte is against enslavement, which means George III may be against enslavement. And so therefore, we're going to extend freedom to y'all. So, I mean, you know, it's fascinating because Look, I'll just say this right quick, and then let, let's talk about this question of whether or not slave owners can be racist. Because <laughs> I, I can't wait to see what you're going to say. Man. But, you know, I was watching this thing. I was really trying to watch. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this thing, I think, is set in 1817 or 1818. I mean, Barbados has a rebellion in 1816. Demira has one in 1823. Jamaica goes off in 1831. I'm saying, how are you going to have black people walking around in British costumes in Great Britain at the early part of the 19th century? And it doesn't appear as if there's any analysis of race. And I thought about it and I said, this is not for us. This is for a white audience. This is for the, it's trying, trying to make money. So, uh, but anyway, you mentioned Dunmore, made me think about it. But Mike, what, what, the cat says that being a slave owner wasn't racist? Yeah, well, that, that's one of the things I, the I think I called you about that. Maybe it was more than a year ago. And it was a politician. Oh, yeah, we had a long conversation. Right, sure right, right. And, uh, and so, but, but that took me on a journey through Lord Dunmore's proclamation. That took me to a journey through Charlotte, through- yeah, You wrote it about it, no question. Right, <laughs> and it took me so far back, and I'm gonna tell you where I ended up, man. I ended up in Portugal with Henry the Navigator. Uh-oh. Sending Stop. two dudes, Nuno Tristal and Antal Gonzalez out. Now this is before, like, they didn't think, they thought monsters, the Europeans thought monsters lay beyond the Cape of Africa. So they didn't know, they were, they didn't know how to get beyond the Cape of Africa. No question. And exploring it, he sends these two guys, Nuno Tristal and Antal Gonzalez, out. And they go, they end up in Africa and kidnap a man on a camel. And the man says, <laughs> look, if you go over there to that fishing village, like you can get like how many people you want to. My God. They go and kidnap the people. One of them is a chief. Now, Gonzalez, he leaves. Nuno Tristal goes back to, to Portugal. Yes. And when Gonzalez comes back, he says, hey, what about the money? Because they were supposed to be getting seal skins. They said, what about the money for the seal skins? And he says, okay, we'll spend it. Here's the money. And he said, wait, wait. How, how is this? Like, this is a lot of money, bro. You got all this for seal skins? He said, no. Remember those Africans we kidnapped? No question. Well, I sold them. And he said, for real? Well, we should go back. And they take one who wasn't sold, a chief back. And for this chief, they get he brings out a hundred of them. Now, this goes back to what you said. Remember, 
the Moors had conquered the Iberian Peninsula. So those people that they bring out, they bring out a hundred people. Some of them were Jews. Some of them were Europeans. Some of them were were uh, for, were more. Some of them were African. Mm-hmm. And he said, you can choose any 10 to take back and sell. Mm. And he chose the black ones because they were more resistant and worked harder. And that's how the transcontinental human trafficking trade begins. Because he just arbitrarily chose the black ones. Brother, brother. And then see that? That piece you just, to me, that narrative becomes the the point of entry to allow us to understand this absurd, this absurd toxic mix we're in. The arbitrariness of that selection. I'm John Clark used to always say, you know, but for the point of a finger, you could have been Cuban and you would have been uh, Louisianian. I mean, it's gonna be, you know, wherever the boat, but that point of entry, in- informed by the fact that, of course, Henry, the navigator, never set foot in a boat. <laughs> He's got these maps. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, why they call you the navigator? Because as you said. The Moors have been in Spain. These Arabs and Africans have been in Spain with latitude and longitude, with algebra, knowing that the world is round. I mean, which presents a problem for a couple of reasons. Number one, they, and of course, I mean, there's a whole rack of books. In fact, even David Levering Lewis, who did the two volumes on W.E. Du Bois, wrote a book on Moor Spain. I mean, everybody's writing about Moor Spain. In fact, there's a book called We Are All Moors, which kind of connects in a second. I'll connect. It's very interesting because these Moors uh, who are are Muslim are in contact with not only all these Europeans who speak these local languages, including the echoes of the old Roman Empire, they also acquire, which means they acquire the knowledge as well of Latin and Greek. So a lot of what comes into what we call now the Renaissance is really those Africans and Arabs, as you know, translating that stuff from Latin and Greek into Arabic and then into the local languages. And so, but that mounting resentment, even as even as they're associated with civilization and culture and everything from bathing regularly to playing chess, they they still this resentment that begin that gets baked into this European mindset that deals with color. And they're Muslims, they're not Christians. So as you say, this guy's gonna pick out the black people. What does black symbolize? Well, black symbolizes at that point in Western Eurasia and on, on the peninsula, certainly in surrounding excellence, learning. But it also represents a barrier. You can't get to Asia because the Muslims got that on lock. You're going to get in boats and go the other way. And y'all think that the world is flat because you're ignorant. But there's some of y'all like Henry and them who suspect there's something different. Why? Because he knows because he's got access to some of this knowledge. And so the, 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 the kidnapping of Africans, the absorption of Africans into this criminal enterprise that now has us speaking English and having to work every week for paper money which the exploitation of our labor while the people we work for get richer and richer begins as you say the strands you narrated brought into that field of violence that is stoked not only by the anti-Muslim fear and now the commingle with the anti-black and non-white fear but Christianity white Christianity Africans can't be Christians if you're going to convert some Africans to Christianity, recruit them into your criminal enterprise, which is, of course, why as they come down the coast of West Africa, they start recruiting some of that elite that you talked about 
into Christianity. That's what happens to Dom Afonso in the Congo. He sends his children to Portugal to get trained as Christians. Where they're going to baptize them and then send them back into the field of violence. But when he, of course, when his kids come back and tell him that, hey, man, they taking our people and putting them in these boats and some Alfonso shuts down the slave trade, tries to shut it down, and what is now in gold right. and <laughs> Shit, don't you? But, but I, I guess, Mike, let me let me ask you this, brother. This is an interesting conversation we had. For people who might think that all of this was just like playing like a football game, people, these white boys got in the huddle, playing it all out, said break, and ran a playbook. How do we get folks to understand that it is these individual choices and events that? That, that didn't come from one playbook, but just meet up later on and then become, how do we get people to understand that? Because people seem like we all want to understand it all at once. Well, I think one of the things is we have been taught that like they're so smart that they have this master plan that began in the, you know, the 1100s. And we, they're still executing part of a master plan that extends way back to then when they are not that smart, right? Like, no. right. So you have to realize that when all of this started, they were literally saying, we are less civilized and we are, we have to go out <laughs> and find people who are smarter and more intelligent. This, this isn't, this is, I, I talked about this uh, earlier on the tweet, right? So, I have been in a, my family have been in a decades long search for this missing part of our family, right? Huh. So I was at a plantation in South Carolina and there was a woman who was giving a tour, right? The tour, this beautiful plantation house, all white people. Of course, oh my right? God. So now I had already been to this plantation. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Joe McLean. You can look him up. He does his slave dwelling projects where he literally has been in 25 states and sleeping. In, oh, yeah. Uh, right, right. I met, I so, met Joe at Montpelier uh, last right. year. Who up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's one thing he always talks about is people don't think of Montpelier as a slave plantation. Right. Uh, 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 agricultural forced labor enterprises is that's what right. I call it. But folks don't know Montpelier was the one James Madison daddy, a uh, granddaddy, and them started. Uh, go ahead. Right. Well, the Africans cleared before they even came over here. Yes. Go so, ahead. I'm Joe, so before I was in the house, Joe had mm. taken me through. This is a 370 acre place, so you got to think about the size of a small town, right? And it, it's been uh, sized down. So he's taken me through these romantic gardens, right? So this was a rice plantation, bought millions of dollars, Charleston in Charleston, which was the 40% of the people who entered, the slaves who entered the United States, the people who entered the United States and were enslaved, because you can't, like they didn't import slaves yet. They imported people and then made them slaves. That's but the people, 40% of them came through, this one city, Charleston. Mm -hmm. It was the an economic enterprise that was built on slavery. It was the richest city in America How at the about time of that? the Civil War. People don't know and that. They didn't do anything but enslave people. That, That's that it. was the industry. Charleston like, would have been bigger than New York City if the South could have won the war. That was so, their plan. <laughs> so, so he takes me through these gardens, right, and it's right on the river. And so the botanist tells me that the people who bred all these plants were the Africans who were enslaved on the plantation. She says, uh, six years ago, Charleston had 
a hundred years, a hundred year flood, right? They have these big floods like every hundred years. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that saved this plantation was because the Africans designed a system <laughs> of dams and levees that would flood the rice fields when they wanted to grow the rice. And then when they wanted to, you know, harvest it, they could let the water out. So now we're in this plantation. And this lady, we're in the first woman, this lady raises her hand and she says, and I haven't recorded, right? How did they figure out how to grow rice here? Like, did they bring some Asians over? Ooh. Ooh. And of course, now these people, their business is like they don't want to make people feel bad about slavery. So they they kind of whitewash it. So she says, no, ma'am. Uh the so, well, the people on the west coast of Africa have been growing rice for centuries. Like what we call Carolina gold is an African rice. And they, the Africans came here and taught the planters how to uh, plant it. Yes. And so, you know, in writing <laughs> about this, because I was, I was ostensibly there to write about this for this magazine. Yes. And I wondered, asked the woman, why do you call them planters if they didn't know how to plant things? She said they tried, she, they tried citrus, it wouldn't grow. They tried uh, silkworm, it didn't grow because the soil was a special kind of soil. So yes. they went to the west coast of Africa and stole some Africans My and God. built the largest economy at that time. And I was like, Listen, the people who own that plantation, right? Yes. They still own that plantation. They're still one of the richest families in America, the Drayton family from South Carolina. Oh the, they were not remarkable people. They didn't, no. they weren't engineers. They weren't learned people. They were not scholars. They just owned black people. And That's so it. the idea that this was some kind of long-term plan that started that they, they, they got a, over a chessboard and broke out a, a mm. whiteboard and said, okay, now a hundred years from now. No, they are not that smart. They could not have done this like without us. And they didn't figure it out. They didn't, we did it. Like all of this stuff is ours. It ain't theirs. And then they might let us have some, it's ours. Like, right. right? Like, we made this country. It ain't like some white people made this country using black labor. Now we did this. They didn't figure out how to do it. They didn't plan it. They didn't put, they didn't build it with their hands. They didn't use their labor, their muscles, their intelligence, nothing. Right. Right. So you can't say they were back 500 years ago planning this whole thing when they didn't have anything to do with it. They were That's just owning people. That's right. That's all they did. That's the only part they had in it, right? So what did we want even as we were being pulled into that field of violence? And by the way, folks, you know, if y'all don't read uh, Michael Harriet's work, you already late to the party. Make sure you go follow this brother on Twitter, read him on the root.com. Anything he writes, read him. Cause I'm telling you, this is, this is, this is the genius. And I'm so glad, man, can you brought him in? Oh, by the way, folks who want to track some of the conversation Mike's having now about this particular rice culture in the Carolinas, uh, Judith, uh, Judith Carney wrote a book called Black Rice. 
which talks about all that, and particularly, particularly women, as you say, they would come and get women out of <laughs> out of the uh, like where Sierra Leone region. I mean, there were once there were certain groups of women. They said, "Go get these sisters." But you know, even during the period that we're getting caught in this, what do you imagine our ancestors wanted? If you could have intervened in that, you or I could have intervened in that. I mean, I think about it, particularly where you're from, because that's South Carolina. In fact, oh man, I just got another one. This just came out, University of South Carolina Press. They pulled many of the black pieces out of the Encyclopedia of South Carolina. So they got this 101 African-Americans who shaped South Carolina, Walter Edgar. Man, I love, you South Carolina Negroes, man. Y'all cannot be defeated. So I'm saying, but what, I mean, what if, you, if we could have stopped them and said, hey, okay, you can't go back. And in fact, you don't even remember back there. Your grandmother was brought, your grandfather. What do you want? If we can well, just what, what do you think they would have said? So I wanted to look at people who kind of knows what they wanted. So yes, sir. And it's not like through any right. So <laughs> my great 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 grandfather used yes, to sir. walk around with a note in his pocket, right? And the note was a pass, even after slavery, right? So my great grandfather. My great 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 grandfather was emancipated because he could read. And so when his owner died, of course, he passed down. In the will I have, it's 89. I, I counted 89 different enslaved people. But he did not want to pass along this, what he called my belligerous Negro servant, Irvin. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, has seated in South and no, he has seated insurgency into the other Negroes. That's what he's that's what he warns his children, right? Yeah, it is, brother. So Woo! when you when you get when you when I'm passing all these slaves down to you, but this one you gotta just let him go. He is he says he is to have his own time, nothing is required, just let him go. <laughs> but Irvin was married to a woman named Delia. Who was pregnant at the time? Is like at the time of of the uh, the slave master's death. So, but he sold her to her to his. He gave her to his daughter who lived on a plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. My, now, this was in Lee County, South Carolina. My my uh, great 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 grandfather. So he split his, split his wife up. So, of course, back then there were slave patrols, right? Yeah, like mandatory, right? That's yes. where we get the draft from. Uh, no the question. slave patrol. So he would be stopped. So been trying this free. What is this free Negro doing walking, trying to get to Charleston? <laughs> and so he had this carried this note in his pocket. Now, because he had this note in his pocket, they could check with what they called the old Salem courthouse back then, and his will was recorded. So the, the past matched up with his will. Got to let this Negro go. He actually is free Negro. <laughs> yes. So I know what they, we know what they wanted. We wanted, they said, if I could teach these people to read and I could, if I can educate my people and get them free, that's all we wanted. We already here now, bro. Like we're here, right? We're here, right? But again, we built this thing, right? Yeah. And it's ours, we deserve some of it. So what they eventually killed my great, great grandfather for was because he was sneaking onto plantation. He was he 
become a blacksmith by then. And teaching enslaved people to read in exchange for they would steal some of this, their master's tobacco crops and give it to him. And he would go and sell. Now, by this time in the Civil War, you had to get what they call stamps to sell your tobacco. Yes. They wouldn't. How does Negro, who was a black man, <laughs> get all this tobacco and ain't got no land? No question. And they killed him there oh. on that spot where right now a Confederate monument stands. Where was so, it? In Charleston? No, this was in Darlington, South Carolina, Darlington County, Darlington. South Carolina, at the Darlington County Courthouse. Um, oh, of course. Is where he would, it says they seized upon him. Yeah. And killed him. Yeah. Right? But we don't have to, but these stories, like, we don't have to guess. We know, like. No, we don't have to guess. Right. Well, we know, first of all, again, none of these people are remarkable. And let me collect. I found that I just found his wife, Delia. I think I found it uh, last weekend. Last weekend. And what's, what's crazy about these plantations, right? And this is where I say we don't have to know. We don't have to guess, right? Mm-hmm. So when you go to these plantations in South Carolina, we think, oh, they emancipated Negroes and then they left the plantation. Now these people didn't have nowhere to go. They were homeless. So when you go visit these plantations and you ask them, hey, when did the last Black people move out of these Safe cabins. Almost everyone, they tell me, the 1990s. The 1990s. Yeah, that sounds about that. That sounds about right. Like they I were mean, them. Yeah, where were they going to go? Right. Where were they going to go? Where and as, they and go? as you know, that that betrayal in 1860, what 1861, two, three, yeah. in South Carolina, like you said, they told them that they could have the land in exchange for continuing to help the Union Army. Then they sold them out, sold the land out from under them after they told them they could bid for the land and then uh, sold them, but you can stay here because we need the labor force. So you're right. right. They trapped them in that. So with that being said, it it can't be reverse engineered. So we are their descendants. What is our obligation in your mind? Right? I mean, we can't, you know, we can't go back. However, no, pause. Let me just ask you, what's our obligation, brother? I think, well, again, to me, mm-hmm. when they say that, like that, remember that old uh, folk song, this land is our land. I think of this as, like, <laughs> right, with, yeah. like if you buy a house, like let's say it was a house, right? you pay for it. You have it's a thirty year mortgage. You pay for it for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. That's your house, bro. Like this is ours. We like, even though however they treat us, this is ours. Like we don't think. Of, I don't think of this as a white man's land. I think mm-hmm. of it as they are lucky to live here. We built this thing, and they are lucky that they had so far four hundred years of benefit for it, uh, from it, right? But they that ain't there. They didn't build it. They didn't make it great. Ain't nothing about American culture, society, politics, art that is not based on the things that the African people they enslaved and brought here is founded, right? Like, ain't no American culture. Just black people who were brought here and enslaved. That's what American culture is. Ain't no American economy, right? It's just founded on the free labor that they got and then 
they may have extended it into two buildings and factories and some stuff in Silicon Valley, but it was all founded. Like the, the, the initial investment was black people, right? Right. So, so what, it ain't, no, ain't nothing else in this country the, the, from the White House that we built to the, 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 the Constitution that is founded on the African concept that it was went to England and and then it, you know, filtered through the, the, the free thought of the of the new age of thinking and, and all of that is ours. None of that so is there. Should that, engender, should that engender a sense? Well, I got a couple. One. What do you do with the original inhabitants in terms of the Native Americans? And when I say Native Americans, the people, the people who were here. And the other question is, does that does that that appropriation of labor does that engender a sense of of desire to be included in this narrative, even if it's just a black narrative? Even if we say that, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, in other words. You know, yes, what you said is absolutely correct. Um, if that becomes the point of departure, then what does what does what does it look like? What does the society look like? Let's say that you know we say okay, yeah, this this we built this. Okay, what is the this? You know, how do you incorporate the Native Americans, for example, and then how do you then move forward? What does this look like? Does it look like a flag? Well, well, Does it look like a, you know? I don't think, for, so I think if you talk about the Native Americans, if you're talking about the, if you talk about us, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is not, like when you look at the Native Americans, how the Native Americans reacted when they, when the white people got here, right? Or when the, you know, for well, when we got here, because first of all, again, they didn't found this. Like the first person who stepped foot on, like alongside Ponce de Leon was Juan Garrido. You know, first person, right. the first black person in America was, I mean, in California was Juan Garrido. The Pueblo Indians said the first white man we saw was a black man, was Estefanito, right? So <laughs> it ain't, again, they ain't did nothing on their own. They didn't found it. They didn't discover it. They didn't build it. But none of those people think they own the land right we don't think we this is like the land is like that's a weird concept that only white people came up with right so the, all of those people they want they didn't care that the white people were here because they like oh it's but look around it's enough for all of us no question like oh like, if we can hunt on and you over there and you hunt or you you grow your grains or you do whatever we can all live like we don't have to extinguish you as long as you don't bother us we're cool exactly exactly right? and only that like the concept of like i don't even think there is anything to take back from you like like all of this stuff from the initial investment you just distribute those resources equally according to the people but this it ain't got to be mine and it ain't got to be yours. Like y'all can stay here, right? Because yeah, well, it's gonna have world, bro. Sure. It's a world. That's why the Af that's why the Africans like let them come over there because they were like, oh, like bro, that's enough. Y'all can have some of these ostrich eggs and these spices, bro. We'll grow some more. <laughs> For real, y'all want 
That's what y'all came up here for? Some spices? So, so, so right? it wasn't a mistake then, as much mm-hmm. as it was a clash of worldviews. I mean, so going forward, is is the this something that looks radically different than the society we live in? Because what you sounds like what you what you're imagining, what you're talking about and thinking through is helping us all think through is creating something fundamentally different than the project we got pulled into. Right. We Right, but I don't know. Like again, I'm not smart enough to know. That's why I call people like you. Oh no, brother! <laughs> how how it ends up because because first of all, like you have to add. We have to ask ourselves: one, can we coexist with these people who have two thousand years of doing this? Right, like we know they're going to. They did it in Africa. They did it in yeah, South America. The third they did rail right now in, in Asia. Uh, uh, I think we, we put too much, and you said it already, Michael, what? not that smart. Why do we put so much energy on what they do, who, yeah. you know, what they're going to do? That's okay. who we are. I think, I think the flip is, I had to correct somebody the other day. The flip is the lens that we look at ourselves through should not be them. Right. We are not juxtaposed to them. That's tough. We are the alpha and the omega. Right. Woo, we, don't, we don't have to reimagine a world. We need to just be who we've always been. And mm-hmm. a lot of this, what we do in this classroom, and I'm looking at Tim Reed, I'm looking at, we talked about Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Beck. I mean, from an entertainment standpoint, there are people doing it, but there are people doing it as we speak, recreating or creating the world that we are supposed to be in. And all of us have a responsibility to stop chasing their, their idols. Stop chasing, you know, their narrative. Stop trying to be, you know, uh, you know, at their, you know, to have them approve who we are. You know, walk into these spaces as our full selves. We'll split an infinitive. We'll do whatever because we are the original. This is a bastard language. This is a bastard culture. You right. know, you realize that's a declaration of war, though. Is it? You better stop saying things like that. No, I'm saying, see, when Mike and led us into the thing, I mean. What? Well, Bobby Wright, many years ago, Bobby Wright wrote a, a small pamphlet, gave a speech, it's called The Psychopathic Racial Personality. And he starts with the metaphor of the bull and the bullfighter. He says, you know, as long as the bull is aiming at that red cape, it's all fun and games. He said, but the minute that bull realizes it ain't the cape, it's the guy with the cape. That's when the that's when the matador has to put the sword in him. You know, I mean, so Wait, it, on, time are you a bull, Dr. Carr? I think we yeah, are all are. we're all bulls in our heart. But I'm saying when you talk about your ancestor teaching people to read in exchange for tobacco, I mean, you know, you're talking about self-determination, you're talking about exchange, and this is a threat. In fact, it's the same reason Frederick Douglass in his first autobiography writes that the week between Christmas and New Year's that the the plantation folk the plantation uh enslaver at the death camp wanted black people to get drunk run foot races if them negroes went off and and tried to fish and tend to their garden these are negroes that are very dangerous in fact there's a brand new book out by robert may called yuletide and dixie slavery christmas and southern memory he says the thing they were terrified of is during christmas time this is when these Negroes going to rebel. 
<laughs> this is what because they have a little time. And so they always were worried. They were worried from the beginning all the way up to the Civil War that we was going to fight back. But when you talk about your ancestors doing that, I mean, yeah, I'm going to create a little space for you to operate as an individual so you don't replicate yourself because I never trusted you. And I guess the way you're talking, Mike, I'm listening. I'm thinking this is the thing of our heart. This is the biggest threat to this entire system, which relies on including us. I mean, when I look at looked at those few minutes of, of Shonda Rhimes, I looked at that and I said, not only is this wholly unoriginal, this is exactly what this system wants. Why? Right. In other words, you don't want out. You just want to put three or four of you in. Just right. like Sandra was the same thing. I don't want to see Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemmings in the White House. That's not progress. You want in the criminal enterprise instead of what you're talking about, which is we have to rethink the entire thing. You arguing over $900 billion? Nah, Chief. Everybody who lives in this country should be able to sleep indoors tonight, have a full belly, certainly a child. But brother, that's the kind of stuff they then, you already on the list. They didn't put you at the top of the list and say, we got to get Harriet because it's 10,000 people. It's 30,000 people. It's 100,000 people listening to him. And once that happens, you know, it's almost like you got to cut off the head of the snake. I mean, right. your answer sounds like Douglas. You know, the, you know, remember, remember in Maryland when Douglas is writing and he's saying, this cat knew how to write, so he was writing all of us passes. <laughs> you know what right. I knew how to write. I mean, so, you know, how how do you assert that vision? Can you assert a vision like that, which is compelling vision? I guarantee you, folks listening to us talking, saying, yeah, man. Can you assert a vision like that without eventually having to take on the matador, to take on this system that says, okay, this guy, this woman, this man, they gotta go. How do you how do you do it? Well, I think first the first thing you have to do is like what you. And, and Dr. Hunter, you and Karen yeah. are doing by, first of all, you have to make everybody understand that this current thing is absurd. Right? That is number one. Brother. Right. Woo! You can't imagine, like, you don't have, like, you are, what we're really talking about, let's be honest, like, we are talking about undoing a radical thing that exists, like the idea of capitalism and this the way that like we gotta write all of these things and we gotta change every few hundred years because it's dumb and stupid. We know it's dumb and stupid, so we got a mechanism <laughs> to change it in the stupid thing, right? Yeah. Like the thing that's stupid has a mechanism to change the stupid thing, so it'll become like less stupid or even more stupid or more absurd. We know it's dumb, right? Yes, yes. And what we're talking about is saying, oh, the thing that originally was here before that stupid thing got put into place that's doing that is radical it's not radical right mm. it is the natural state of being it's the natural state of man now what happened was during the enlightenment like they convinced people that is that, that's because that's the lie that america's born on during the enlightenment of the natural state of man this divine sure. law and the and the whole the whole controversy with slavery from its beginning is the assertion by Locke and, and them boys that oh, yeah. property was you and all them spirit of the laws, no question. Yeah, property was a right, and the government existed to keep law and order so that men can have their property and their freedom and their liberty. And long as it didn't interfere with that, it was cool. But then you wrote the laws that interfered specifically 
with these people's rights. How do you justify that? Oh, because they're property. And that's yeah. a natural right. Right. And to your earlier observation, the native of the people who were here, yeah, they don't have a concept we have, so they're underdeveloped. So when I put my foot on here, this is terra nullis. I mean, this is it, nobody is here. I know you're physically walking around, but you don't have a concept of ownership. So therefore, I have title to this land because I have a concept of ownership. You don't. So I mean, that I don't know if that's the kind of thing you can you can you can you reverse engineer that now and return to the prior moment, or does as does going forward. I mean, I guess some of this, I guess, does does require. Well, well I think going forward, like it's one, it requires seeing how absurd. Once you realize how absurd this thing yeah. is, yeah. then you have to imagine like what can we do to make it less absurd. Right. Right. Oh, oh, oh. okay, that's good. And then, yeah. and then the next, like, it's not a yeah. pointed direction. In oh, let's go back to doing that thing. But the right. less absurd thing is toward the natural state of being. That's right. That's right. Actually, that's a perfect broad articulation to kind of put a floor under how Kwanzaa came into existence. Right. Perfect. We're not going back. Right. <laughs> but we right. going forward, we got to make this uh, less absurd and we can learn something right. from what we were doing before we got interrupted that can help. That actually, man, that's brilliant. I hope that's right. in your book, brother. I know you're writing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. And, and when you talk about Kwanzaa, right, because like I was born I did. I never celebrated Christmas as a child. Right? So I celebrate Kwanzaa every year. Every year, we had we would go to. I, there was a uh, guy who owned a funeral home, and every year during Kwanzaa, he would have the Kwanzaa celebration every night, and my mom would organize it. So, like during this time of year, like people would bring by cakes by our house and candy and gifts, like like little stuff, right? And then sure. it was my mom's thing to like organize them and separate them and then kids would come by and get these little presents and then the deltas every year gave away a bike on the last day of Kwanzaa and so Kwanzaa oh, everybody knew that bike day was Kwanzaa day. and then, <laughs> then everybody started the AKA start competing and so it was yes, multiple sir. bikes and then almost everybody like everybody had a bike by the end by the end so wow. so but the idea of Kwanzaa is based on Again, I always say like it's a made up holiday because always all holidays are made up. All right? holidays like, made up, no question. Right? Like we just arbitrary. Like that's why we put Christmas on December twenty fifth because like, well, you know, the, everybody go have be out having fun anyway. And it's well, Saturday, that's what it is. It's, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a solstice celebration. Right. That, that Jesus don't have no birthday in the Bible. Right. <laughs> Somebody can have one, show it to. Right, that's right. That's exactly right, brother. So. So if you want to understand, like, like that's why I was kind, of, like it was kind of absurd this thing about black people getting superpowers. But it was funny to me that like, <laughs> oh, they really knew that, like, that really used kind of used to be a thing with us. Like, like, yeah. like, like during this during the solstice, like, it was a celebration, and yeah. we used to celebrate it kind of like we was getting superpowers, and yeah. we used to switch things up, like the husbands do this and the wives do this, and Kwanzaa again is based on this going back to this understanding of these principles that you would want to build a community out of. That's exactly right. Right. That is exactly right, brother. In fact, it's so funny. I'll be, well, I guess we'll all be sitting where we're sitting right now, but on Monday on Ujima, I'm going to be with Baba Bernie and them, Baba Gallman, and they're doing something in Columbia. 
and right. I think they got like a thousand people already lined up with the uh, the um, the embongi they do there, Catalyst embongi. I mean, them your people, man. I mean, like you say, yeah, that is a natural. Kwanzaa is a natural expression. As you say, I mean, you know, we think about you know us, the organization, us, uh, 1966, and they start Kwanzaa. You know, Malana Karinga. But it's interesting you said that y'all never celebrated Christmas. Because um, and Keith Mays writes about this in his book on Kwanzaa. But you know, I you know I've known Kring for many years. I mean, the holiday is this dude comes over their house in '65, December '65, and he brings a black baby doll to give to their daughter. And Karinga's like, "Well, thank you. This is wonderful. I mean, you know, we don't celebrate Christmas." The dude then asks him, "Well, what do you celebrate?" And it takes them a year <laughs> to work out this thing. So y'all never celebrated Christmas. No, I've never, ever, like, I mean, like, no, like it was like people, <laughs> I guess when people, when I got older and people would ask me, what do I celebrate? I didn't have anything to say, like, we would Kwanzaa, but I don't, I didn't think of Kwanzaa as a replacement for Christmas. Because and I knew Christmas existed. Yes. I just didn't think of it as like I thought it was two different things right like, so so what happened when um when you left the the higher education of home-based schooling and went into the institution Did oh um I got I got in trouble like I remember man I did like wow. my first year in school in like the school system I yeah. think we had some kind of class project and I did a project on like why Christmas is absurd, like oh y'all know Sing. Jesus wasn't born on, Ooh. but that's a, I mean to me I was a bit like this is thing I it's, I just considered it a thing that a lot of people didn't know y'all thought Jesus was born on December twenty fifth and it's not his birthday and then you know like the thing that y'all believe in like the only thing he really kind of said in it is like don't do this like right. he explicitly said like look if you have any ideas about how to celebrate me. Let me tell you, don't do it like the heathens. Don't do the trees. Don't do Come like, on. don't do that. And so I got in trouble for that. Brother, and so you blowing up children's minds, man. Yeah, yeah. So, but I don't like I never thought of it as like a righteous thing to not celebrate Christmas or like I was raised right. Like I was just like, oh, I, oh, I see. I see. Right. It was just a thing that some people did and some people did so like i know it's from the outside it looks kind of fun and i think the way oh of course and sometimes i think like my mom was kind of like trying to be kind of radical but i guess to get someone to look at it from afar and see how much fun it is you have to tell them like oh you can't do that because it's stupid like you got to say it's you got to teach your kids uh... that it's not that it's not just the thing that we don't do but you got to kind of because to, to to disambiguate it from the fun thing like you guys yeah. say yeah they doing it and it's fun but it's kind of stupid right like that's the only way you can get a kid to not like the lights and the colors and the that's right you know presents like because i won't i like presents no question but and, i don't understand you, why you give it. yeah why you give presents on jesus birthday i just don't like i never because they made up the story says Jesus got presents. Yeah. Maybe Jesus got presents in that manger. But not, 
Yeah, but then why you don't give them the Jeep? I just don't understand. It. Oh, see, yeah, okay. You know that there it is. Children always asking the question that blows up the whole spot. <laughs> right, like it, like you were saying in the in the uh, in the show last week. You literally asked the question that I asked. Like every week in church, we would have to stand up and recite the Ten Commandments, and I oh. asked, "Hey, why he said like if he think they if he know they other gods." Like right. He wouldn't tell people. If it wasn't no other gods, then why would he have to tell people, "Thou shalt not worship any other gods before me, brother." There must be some other gods, right? Because he would just say, <laughs> "Like, listen, I got to yeah, hey, Um, time is going. I got to be that person." Yeah. Oh. We got five people yeah. asking question. Yeah, okay, okay. I want to make sure we get to the question asked. I need to know about Kwanzaa. Okay. I want to thank Michael. And before you go, um, your mask, people are obsessed with the mask. It looks like Killmonger or something from Black Panther. So that is, it is the uh, the Black Panther Jamari. mask. When I, saw, when I saw it, I wanted it. And so I had a person like on Etsy, a black tool on Etsy that 3D prints these things. And he just sent it to me and it was blue and I painted it for wow. a Halloween costume like a couple years ago. Wow. And of course I'm a Q, so it was purple and gold, but <laughs> hey, um, man, no question. It's the Jabari tribe mask. It's the okay. So it is. All right. People they, they know, were right. It looks like a Jabari mask. It is a Jabari mask. Okay. Literally. Man, Mike, bro, man, I'm, I'm loving we chop it up, man. We gotta do this again. You're gonna call him, you know, on his private <laughs> line. And y'all go ahead. Because I don't think we got anything that we were supposed no. to talk about. We didn't talk about Casey Jones or no, but you know, people need to. You know, I'm going to drop the link to your thread um, in the description because they need to go the yeah. way you, your drumbeat of how you break things down. They need right. to process that. So, no um, I want to thank you for your scholarship. The root is where you can thank find Harriet on Twitter. You can follow him there. We'll drop yeah. that in the, in the description too. I love you. I love you guys. <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs> Oh no, that's mutual. That's mutual. Oh wow, man, that was fantastic. Oh, Mike, I mean, he put his he put his hand on it, Karen. This this is the most difficult conversation we have to have. What is the thing in our heart? And we think about Kwanzaa, as I said. I mean, you're talking about uh, an individual in Malala Karinga very uh very important figure brilliant not without complication and controversy but most importantly a person like all of us who is formed in community with other people uh comes out of maryland raised on a farm follows a couple of brothers out to the west coast blood brothers that is uh ends up in study formations at ucla in the bay area there's something called the afro-american association uh, folks may be familiar with that study group. Now in the Bay Area uh, was, a, was a young cat named Donald Warden. He had a Muslim name. He actually went to Howard undergrad. He wrote a couple of books actually uh, about his time there. This study group was over the course of time, 1961, two, three. This is the same study formation that produced the Afro-American Association uh, where Donald Harris and uh, Shaimala Golapan used to go, uh, Kamala Harris's uh, parents. Cedric Robinson, uh, the political scientist who wrote Black Marxism and other things. They're all in this study group. Karenga is connected to them. Uh, 
Huey Newton, Bobby Seale. I mean, these conversations are taking place. He's back in Southern California. He's taking classes, uh, gets fascinated with uh, Kiswahili, uh, African history and culture uh, as the student body president, actually, uh, you know, as an undergraduate. And it's very interesting because uh, finishes his, his, his bachelor's degree, master's, ends up moving into formation called us in the wake of the Watts Rebellion of uh, the summer of 1965. And out of that formation, us and us as opposed to them, um, that becomes the foundation for uh, the creation of an attempt to articulate something that draws on the best of our, what Jacob Carruthers would call deep well of African thought over the arc of, of millennia combined with kind of a contemporary application to problem solving that's reason-based. The, 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 the combination is, is given the label, given the title Kawaida for like traditions. So, so that's the philosophy that emerges out of the organization us with Karenga at the center. And, you know, without getting too deep into it, uh, in fact, um, I should have, uh, for those who, you know, don't know anything about any of this, because a lot of these people are still alive, still going around. And I'm going to talk about a few of them in a minute. Oh, I thought I had a copy of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here's one. Uh, Kwanzaa. This is the book I was talking about. Keith Mays' book, Kwanzaa, Black Power and the Making of the African-American Holiday Tradition. Mays does a very good job in terms of names and dates and things like that. His framework, I'm not, you know, thrilled about. But that's because, as we just heard uh, Brother Michael talking, uh, you know, when you begin to think outside of the frameworks that we've been trained to think in, you become a problem. So in other words, I'm saying that to say this. Often, one of the critiques of Kwanzaa at the time that it kind of emerged was that, you know, this is about, cult, this is like cultural nationalism. It isn't dealing with the real world. It isn't dealing with the material conditions of our people. And there's a false kind of rigid split that scholars try to make based on some of the rhetoric that emerges out of the mid to late 1960s between what they call the revolutionary nationalists and the cultural nationalists. And so, you know, there's a library of books that talks about us versus the Panthers and the revolutionary nationalists, all that stuff, read it all, understand it, and then kind of set it aside. Because if you know the people who lived through those periods and nobody agrees with everybody, with everybody else all the time, but you see that that's a kind of a blurry distinction. We all have culture. We all have cultural grounding. And the notion of change and revolutionary nationalism, you know, what people are talking about, and I won't, I'll just say this and I'll keep going because I don't want to get too deep into this because, you know, people will try to make a distinction between a historical materialist view, worldview that doesn't have spirituality and culture at the center of the analysis as distinct from what they narrate as a cultural worldview or spiritual worldview. You know, yeah, I understand all that, but what about the real world? Okay, now we're going to set all that aside and keep going very quickly to talk about Kwanzaa. As I said before, you know, the, the idea in, in the in the Kawaita theory, so to speak, and there's a little book called Kawaita theory, a couple of books that Karinga puts out, uh, Clyde Halisi and others, you know, are there with him, a bunch of other folks. You know, he said the central problem we're facing as African people is the problem of culture. That's what Karinga would say. That's what us would say. Right now, you know, you can debate how it's phrased, how it's characterized, but anytime you look at popular culture where black folk are included in something that displaces them completely in terms of any sense of who or what African people were. And again, I'll go back to this thing that's on Netflix. I'm looking at this like, this is just, what is this? This, this, this speaks to the crisis of culture. This is not representation. 
this is blackface minstrelsy in some ways. But I mean, I understand we somebody got a check and, you know, we got some actors working. But that's the same thing they said. Well, I'm going to come to this in a second. I get to the Kwanzaa flag. It's not the Kwanzaa flag. The flag of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the red, black and green flag that has a little bit. Uh, the, the black is is put on the top in what is considered the Kwanzaa flag. If you're going by the organization, us, they kind of change the colors a little bit. But the same colors are there, red, black and green. That flag emerges in the 1920s in direct response to something I'll come to in a minute. I'm going to make this Netflix uh, uh, connection. Anyway, I'm going to keep this very short and then we can keep going. I've got an eye on the clock. Once it's clear that there needs to be something put in place, a ritual put in place that can kind of help promote this question of black power. And black power is, of course, emerging kind of emerging above ground, so to speak, in public view in the mid-1960s in direct response to the kind of dovetailing of particularly the student dimension of the so-called long civil rights movement. People are there. They're moving. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I mean, the Black Panther Party has its roots in Lowndes County, Alabama, as we talked about. You know, you read my my man, um, Hakeem Je uh, Hassan Jeffries book, Bloody Lounge, or for that matter, go to the SNCC Legacy Project website. You kind of trace all that. But what you see then is this black power feeling is emerging and there's this connecting, reconnecting to the question of black history and black culture. And, and one of the things that is talked about among many other things, again, I'm doing a very, very quick shorthand here, is the idea of rituals. Rituals, rituals help connect people in time and space. Kwanzaa isn't the first black holiday. In fact, during that period, Malcolm is assassinated in February 1965. You're going to see in February 1966 the commemoration of that moment, that assassination moment, and the honoring Malcolm as a new ancestor. Then his birthday, May 19th, is February 21st. He's assassinated. May 19th is his birthday. You want to make that a day when people say, you know, we're taking this day off. We're not going to have no no holiday. We, I mean, we're not going to go to work. Holiday. So you see this kind of energy trying to to emerge. Now, mind you. Malcolm's assassinated February 21st. What's already in place as early as 1926, in fact, beginning in 1926, is so-called Negro History Week, which by the end of the 60s, 1969, is going to become Black History Month. In other words, so this too is a ritual. And in fact, if you want to go to the beginning of the, of the, the Western calendar year, January 1st, that arguably is the first Black holiday that Black people created in this country. Uh, that was Emancipation Day. The Emancipation Proclamation is supposed to go into effect January 1st, 1863. And we talked about this when we talked about Juneteenth. That Emancipation Day was the day that Black people, particularly in the North, uh, who were going to this church, that's one of the origins of Watch Night. You go in on the 31st, you pray until a stroke of midnight. Afterwards, you pray in the new year, you get up off your knees, get to bayonet, let's go end enslavement. The idea of Emancipation Day, this was a big ritual that was celebrated in the black church from the midnight, well, last third of the 19th century up into the, well into the 20th century. You have Freedom Day. There are a number of other uh, uh, ritual celebrations. So Kwanzaa emerges as yet another attempt of black people to establish some ritual space to form and bond community that is deliberately connected to linking pre-enslavement memory through the deep study of Africa and the African diaspora to the problem solving conditions going forward. That's why I say I don't believe in this cultural slash revolutionary. Oh, it's not a question of belief. It, it doesn't hold water when you begin to scrutinize it because 
the 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 Kawaida principles, the principles of this philosophy, this kind of concept of Kawaida traditions, is anchored in these seven basic principles. They call it Nguzo Saba, these seven values, right? And so those seven values form the template for what become Kwanzaa. Now, a couple of things I'll clean up, then we go forward on how Kwanzaa spread. Why December? It's very simple. Let's go with the most practical thing first. You get the time off. Christmas time, you get off. Christmas, New Year's, you get the time off. That's very simple. The second thing is, if you take something from people or if people feel like something's being taken, Mike made a very important point. Kwanzaa's not a black Christmas. However, Christmas occupies the black imagination without a critical analysis of what that ritual is. And so Kwanzaa is not a black Christmas. It's not trying to replicate Christmas. It's not trying to counter Christmas as much as it is trying to create something that will anchor in principles that ironically if there's going to be a Christmas and, you know, Christmas, if you look at Christ, there's a mass is from that's from the Latin, the Eucharist. I mean, this is the this is the mass for Christ. In other words, the Eucharist, you know, one of the things that the Eucharist does is ritual for saints. Right. This is the ultimate saint, Jesus. Right. So, I mean, so Christmas is the Eucharist for the, you know, for, for the ultimate saint, Jesus, the son of God, so to speak. And so what does Christ stand for? This guy gets murdered by the state. For talking like Mike was talking. We got to redistribute this. Nah, we got to do, oh no, this guy got to go. He out here, he, he ain't getting no salary from this Sermon on the Mount. He ain't, and, and this is not a diss of all the mega churches, because as my friend and brother and elder Jeremiah Wright would remind, when you have a big formation of people, institutional formation of people like they do Trinity United Church of Christ, my man, Otis Moss III passed that in now. Or, you know, somebody like Bill Lamar at Metropolitan AME, where these white boys try to take down the Black Lives Matter sign. They do Kwanzaa at those places and they also invest hundreds of thousands and now over the years, millions of dollars in black institutions and education and feeding people and bringing people in and job employment programs. I mean, you cross the board, right? Healthcare, this kind of thing. So, uh, so it isn't a diss at mega churches, so to speak. It is, however, a diss at purely profit-driven Christians, because that means you ain't no Christian. Because if you look at the narrative of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, how you gonna be a Christian and rich and all these people poor and you ain't doing nothing about it? So Kwanzaa in many ways is an articulation of the values, the grounding values that ostensibly are supposed to be Christian. But what did Christmas become over the years? Well, we know what Christmas became because Christmas started that way. Meaning what? Now let's bring the solstice in very quickly. Solstice, shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere as we, as we were talking about as we began. Then, this, then the earth started moving back toward the sun. Earth tilted on its axis. It's going to straighten. And now you're going to get the days going to start getting longer in the, in the Western Hemisphere till you get to the equinox when the day and night of a, are of equal length. The Christian metaphor for that is Easter. Maybe we'll talk about that in March and April. Then you move toward the solstice. Now you get to June. Now the day is the longest it's going to be. The solstice, summer solstice now is south of the equator. So in South Africa, it's beginning of summertime. We know, we know that, right? So um, but here in the Northern Hemisphere, which includes North Africa, by the way, we're talking about 
solstice traditions. What are the solstice traditions? Well, who is going to be the most grateful for the days beginning to get longer? The people in the coldest parts. This is why the Saturnalia, the Saturnalia, the Romans and them, Saturday, Saturnalia. Saturn is the god, among other things, of the harvest. Now, Kwanzaa said Kwanzaa's made up holiday. There ain't no Kwanzaa festival in Africa. Everybody slow down. Ain't nobody ever said it was a holiday. But there are thousands of harvest festivals. And guess what? We just celebrated a festival named for somebody. Uh, I'm sorry, not named for them, but put where it's put to recruit the people who celebrated a harvest festival god. Uh, that would be Saturnalia, which is why this Christmas we talking about is the Roman government and the Roman army and the Roman expanding empire recruiting these non-Christians into a Christian ritual because the Romans have determined that we can't kill this thing, so let's control it. They have used that to recruit these people in who were celebrating the harvest festival. And what do these people do during Saturnalia? They get drunk, they eat, they do all kind of crazy stuff which we won't go into right now. By the way, Easter got some similar traditions. We'll get to that another time. Uh, they exchange gifts. They create a king of the Saturnalia. They act running, acting fool, this kind of thing. Oh, well, we can't. They, 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 they bring living stuff, you know, greenery and stuff into their house because spring is going to come. It ain't here yet, but the sun is going to start. We're going to go back toward the sun now. The days are going to get longer. Well, look at that. So, uh, yeah, we're going to put the birthday of Jesus, who does not have a birth date in the Bible. We're going to put the birth of Jesus here. Jesus, I ain't for no Jesus. Yeah, but we're going to let you keep most of that Saturnalia stuff. We're just going to rejigger it a little bit and tell you this story. Oh, okay. So this is a metaphor for the birth of the son. Yeah, but not S-U-N, S-O-N. Okay, well, S-U-N and S-O-N. Okay, cool. We good, we good. Christmas, December 25th. Come on now. Everybody just relax because Saturnalia is 17th through the 24th. So you just finished celebrating one name that brought in a harvest festival. So now Kwanzaa comes in the 26th. That's today. The first principle, Umoja. Now, normally, if we hadn't had this plague hit, I would be up there real close to you, Karen. I would be over there with my man, Jimmy Cleckley, and all my people at the New York African Burial Ground. I love them. They like that candle. I lit it last year. This is the program from last year. This is the Kwanzaa program. The Kwanzaa calendar. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. This is the one from D.C. I'll get to D.C. in a minute. This is the one from the New York African Burial Ground. Celebrating Kwanzaa. These are my friends. There's a Kwanzaa glossary. If y'all want to get I'll just show it to you right quick. You can pause the video. You can get all the key Swahili words produced by the volunteers of the African Burial Ground National Monument right down there in lower Manhattan. My people. Yeah, here's this program from last year. So uh, I love them. The seven principles. The first day on. Oh, let me just show you the, the, the piece here. Here go the symbols of Kwanzaa. You put fresh fruits and so if you want to build one, you can build with basically a, a place where you put all these things together and had these symbols, right? You got crops, mazal, that's fresh fruits and vegetables symbolizing harvest, makeka, the placemat, you put a little straw mat down, a kanara, the candle holder, it holds seven candles. You've got the uh, babunzi, ears of corn, which represent children. The kikombe, cha umoja, that's the cup of unity. That's where you pour libation, that's there in the middle there. Uh, you got the uh, mashuma saba, the several, seven candles, that's Kiswahili. We'll talk about why it's Kiswahili in a minute. 
And then you have the Zawadi, which is like gifts. So it's all together. The black candle is in the middle. You see the black candle here. All right. You like that one first. The black candle is Umoja, unity. Umoja is unity to strive for and maintain unity in the family, community, nation, and race. What are we doing? We're trying to create something that wasn't there before. And what was that? People. A black people. Black people didn't exist before enslavement. There were many different people. I mean, when you hear Brother Michael Harriet talk about rice culture in South Carolina and you read Judith Carney's book, Black Rice, or you look at uh, uh, um, Michael Gomez exchanging our country marks or Sterling Stuckey slave culture, or you look at uh, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall's book, African Ethnicities in the Americas, you look at all of this stuff and all of their students that are now talking, you are raising a fundamental question. The fundamental question we have, the one that we are, we got a couple of questions. Number one, how does one live fully in time and space? That's the human condition. That's the human question. How do you, uh, as Baba Fukiao, Bunseki Fukiao uh, writes and talks about, you know, how do you stand up in the V? Meaning what? You got time, vertical line. You got space, horizontal line. How do you stand up in the V? How do you stand up so you are in command of your time and space, this brief period we got before we return to what we came out of conceptually. How do you stand up in that V, so to speak, as my uh, brother at Community College of Philadelphia uh, would say, uh, brother Anya uh, Buile uh, um, Love, Aaron Love. How do you stand up in that V? So that's the first question. How does one live fully in time and space? Now we talk about individual fulfillment and let's meditate and we, you know, let's self-care. Okay, but how do you do it collectively? How do a people, how do a people heal from a grand wounding? Because what Michael was leading us through, the, the, this is a serial wounding over centuries. It's no time in terms of world history, but in terms of our immediate experience as we sit here on this Saturday afternoon on the East Coast, it is the only thing that we see. It is the trauma that has informed our lives. It is the trauma that has us aspire to a sense of self that is still out of somebody else's imagination. I have no interest in watching a scattering of black people in period costumes in late, I'm sorry, early 19th century England, unless you're going to take on what those black people who were in early 19th century England talking about. If this thing, this period piece on Netflix starts in 1818, that means that two years before that, there was a revolt in Barbados and the British in the in the royal houses are talking about that. I didn't see that in the first 30 minutes. So I'll watch a few more. Maybe it'll come up. I guarantee it won't. But I'm going to take a bet at one. I can't guarantee because I haven't seen it. I'm going to not speak stupidly. But how do a people, how do a people heal from a wounding, especially, here's the problem. Here's the real problematic, so to speak especially when the people you're talking about were created as a unit out of that wounding. So here's the problematic of Kwanzaa. If the first principle of the Nguzo Saba is unity, you're talking about something you're going to have to create. Now it does have a basis prior to the, the claim for black power or the claim for black unity or the claim for remembering. But that basis is the wounding, is the trauma. Our collective experience was the lash, was the whip. And the farther we get away from the lash, 
the greater the likelihood that without something there to ground us in that is not the trauma, the grounding will either continue to be based on the trauma or we're going to disappear as a, a group who has a coherent sense of being a group. This is Du Bois talking in Johnson C. Smith in 1960 when he says these laws are going to change. And when they do, then you're going to have the difficult question, the question of race and culture. He gives that talk in 1960, just before he and Shirley Graham leave for Ghana, a little, a little less than a year later, a little over a year later, rather. And five years after that, us creates Kwanzaa. Now, what do you have? Unity. How are we going to, who is the we? We've been talking about that all along. To serve, to strive for, and to maintain unity in the family. Okay. I know, I don't know about the rest of y'all. I know my mom and them. I know my cousin and them. So you start with family. That's why the people closest to you are the ones that spread Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa, if you look at Kiswahili, and the reason they pick Kiswahili is because it is a regional language. It isn't tied to one national or ethnic group. So it isn't Zulu. It isn't Yoruba. It isn't Ebbo. It isn't, you know, it is a regional language. And some people say, yeah, but it's also a language of so those who enslaved us as well. It's got some Arabic in it. It's a Bantu language, meaning Central and Southern Africa, East Coast, primarily Eastern Africa. But yeah, but nah, let's not quibble that because during the 1960s, this is the conversation that's being had on the continent of Africa and the diaspora. You're having conversations of how do we unify, especially when we were never one people at the beginning. So people say, well, people are, Kwanzaa is romanticizing. There ain't nothing more romanticizing than that made-up car crash between Christianity and Saturnalia you call Christmas. So let's not get cute when we start talking about, you know, otherwise, like Michael Harriet did as a child, you go up in the, church, in, in the school and blow up the whole spot. So I'm just saying, so let's just all agree, we're going to keep that in the category of faith and opinion. Because if you come over here with reason, it ain't going to be pretty for you. So the argument was, can we get a language that we can connect Africans all over the world with. Kiswahili in the East was debated. Hausa in the West, also a trade language in the West. Kiswahili kind of emerged as the one, which is one reason why if you have an African language taught at your college, if you're a college or university, it's probably going to be Kiswahili. In fact, the HBCUs, if they teach an African language and many HBCUs don't, but the ones that do, if one, the first language they're going to teach is the African language, it's probably going to be Kiswahili. It's coming out of the 1960s. So that's why these words are in Kiswahili. Kwanzaa, a word, you know, Wahiri uh, Ya Kwanzaa, which is first fruits, they take the word Kwanzaa out. And according to the, the narrative of us at the first Kwanzaa, there were seven children, and so seven ears of corn. They want to, so, but they ain't seven letters in Kwanzaa. Every child wanted a speaking part in the letter, so they add an A. So it's K W A N Z A A. Those of you who speak Swahili, if you're from East Africa, you're watching now, you say, Well, that doesn't mean, yeah, they just added an A. So there's the improvisational piece. That may be uh, the principle of Kuumba we see, right? So the first principle very quickly is Umoja. The second, Kujichagalia. That's tomorrow. Self-determination. To define ourselves, name ourselves, create for ourselves, and speak for ourselves. That is the idea that we have to stand somewhere in the world. And when we, that, that question of definition is going to feed, the, in fact, the black candle, Umoja, unity, all of these other principles feed unity. Because what do we do when we have memory? Let me go back very quickly for about maybe you know, a minute and a half on the question of calendars. We talked about this last week, but talk about it again now. The Egyptian calendar, and, and uh, Karen, oh my God, when I told you you sent me back, I had to dig this one out. This is a book called The Egyptian Calendar, A Work for Eternity, uh, Dr. Von Brohard. Uh, This was the beginning. In fact, I've taken so many pictures in front of this. This is the back 
of one of two statues of Ramses II at Waset, what they call Luxor. This is the back of the other statue that's across from it with Sachet. Sachet is the sister who is given the responsibility of everything that can be measured, everything can be counted. Uh, that is an astronomical device on her head for measuring an astronomical phenomenon because that's how the Egyptians, she's counting. This is a palm frond. She's counting there with her rod. Just her brother, husband, partner, wife, male counterpart, Jehudi, who is doing the same thing on the back of the statue. I always love taking this picture of Sachet because when you talk about math, this is the sister right here is responsible for math. When Toni Morrison made transition last summer, we were actually, that's the day we went to Waset and we poured libation at that statue of Sachet because Toni Morrison is a daughter of this sister right here. She's a daughter of Sachet. This is also the lady they call the mistress of the library. She's the keeper of the books of the records. So of course she was. And of course from there, I said, well, I was reminding myself of the calendar stuff. And then, then I went to this one, this the heavy joint. I got this a couple of years ago when I was at the Egyptian Museum in search of cosmic order, selected essays on Egyptian um, archaeoastronomy. You know, that sounds kind of crazy. I'm showing this to y'all because people think that, you know, when we start talking about Egypt, these are people who, who say all oh, them hoteps. Okay, you should be quiet now. Be very quiet. Write down the books and think. I'm not actually, I'm not even talking to anybody here because anybody saying that probably never tuned in but we want everybody because ultimately what we're trying to do this principle of subtermination define ourselves and name ourselves the egyptian calendar very quickly was divided into 12 months of 30 days each it was based on a solar calendar they had a solar calendar and a lunar calendar but it was based on celestial phenomena and it's very interesting there's a chapter in this book um the book on archaeoastronomy and really the really the person who i would suggest people look to is the great Theophilo Benga. This is his book on African philosophy, the Pharaonic period. This is my teacher. Uh, and also Dr. Mario Beatty. Mario Beatty take you through all this. But there's a chapter in here called um, the Egyptian calendar, keeping my eye on earth. They were looking at celestial phenomena and created a calendar that was superior to anything anybody else had in the world. And in fact, Obenga in his chapter in this book on time uh, is very interesting. O Obenga has a chapter in African philosophy, the Pharaonic period on calendars and time. And he starts with, let me see, on time in the heavens, actually, page 127 of a almost 700 page book. Obenga says, this is actually, he does his own translations because he translates not only Egyptian hieroglyphs, he translates the Greek and all this stuff right here. So you see the Greek, then you see his translation from Plato's Timaeus. Solon, Solon, you Greeks are perennial infants. Not a single Greek is an elder. This is what the Greek, this is what the Egyptian priests told the Greeks because they wouldn't stay still long enough to understand celestial phenomena. And when you want to think about self-determination and naming and defining yourselves and the well of knowledge you can tap into, let me describe the Egyptian calendar very quickly. They had 12 months, 30 days each, divided into three, four-month periods. Ahet, which was the inundation of the Nile, Peret, the next third, and then Shemu. Shemu is the summer, so to speak. Their calendar will begin on the calendar we use now around September. All right? 444. It's based on the flooding of the Nile. And then they cultivate, they harvest, and then, and they had, oh, they had harvest festivals. All human beings have harvest festivals. 
Kwanzaa is not a is not made up based on nothing. It's a gloss of many harvest festivals and harvest festival concepts. So at any rate, and then the period when they couldn't farm, when they couldn't prepare the land, that's when they worked on civic projects like them pyramids. Slaves didn't build the pyramids. That's too many Easter Sundays watching the Ten Commandments. But at any rate, that's a whole nother conversation. So each of those months is divided into three weeks of 10 days. So over 12 months, you get 360 days. Then they have five days that they call um, um, Heru Rempet. Rempet is their, is their name for the year. Rempet. Um, Heru Rempet means above the year. So they got five days. So you, you go through your 12 month calendar and then you got like, almost like a mini month of five days. You know, you, you met the, they would call it in, in Western language, epigominal days. So there's a epigominal days. In other words, these are days beyond the calendar and they have five days, but here's a problem. They still got a quarter day. It takes the earth 365 and a quarter day to go around the sun. Watch this, my gosh. You know that quarter day is going to do? Every four years, it's going to add up to one day. Quarter day, quarter day, quarter day, quarter day, you got a day. Every month, it, it may add up to one month after 123 years. And after a year, it's going to add, I'm sorry, how long would it take you to get them quarter days saved up to get a year? <laughs> this sister here, Dr. Von Berhard, I love the way she puts it. She says, here, let me see if I can find it. As the actual course of the earth around the sun lasts through another quarter of a day, however, the days, decades, or 10-day periods, that's what they call them, decanal, the 10-day week, and months wandered by one day every four years, by a decade every 40 years, by a month every 120 years, until after 1,460 years, this is actually, man, New Year's Day and the natural season fell again into their original place. That's what they call the great year. Now, what we don't know, I had a mind blown now. We don't know how long those Africans, and make no mistake, they were Africans. We don't know how long those Africans were looking at those stars to figure out that there was one, Sepet, Sophus, Sirius, up in the sky, that every 1,460 years comes back to the exact same place. How long you got to observe that phenomenon in order to not only trace out your calendar of 12, 30-day months of three 10-day weeks apiece, five days you make a mini-month, how long you got to watch those stars to figure out there's another quarter day and all you got to do is stay still and every 1,460 years you get what we call now perhaps a leap year. Because what we do now is a leap day. Don't play with Africans. They built the pyramids. You still can't figure out how they did it. Don't get cute. And I ain't going to get into the pyramid stuff because, again, this is where it gets real heavy and folks think, oh, man, they be talking crazy. There's a reason why Maurice White and them put all them pyramids on their album covers of Earth, Wind, and Fire very clearly. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. That's a whole nother thing. So anyway, self-determination is about reclaiming some of that knowledge in order to define. Let me go through the rest right quick. Ujima. That's what I'm going to be with Mike's folks in South Carolina on, on, on uh, Monday. My man, Bernie Gallman, Dr. Gallman and the crew are down there. The uh, the Mbongi, Catalyst Mbongi, Kathy Adams and them. 
The Ujima is collective work and responsibility to build and maintain our community together and make our brothers and sisters problems our problems and to solve them together. That's what Karen Hunter is doing. Collective work and responsibility. Very quickly, number four, the fourth day of Kwanzaa, Ujamaa, Cooperative Economics. I think about my people out there, the Ujamaa Collective in Indianapolis, Mashariki, Jawanza, and um, Kamal Jawanza and the crew that's been doing Kwanzaa for so many years. In fact, Mashariki talks about the fact she goes back to like 1971, 1972, when, uh, and I'll drop this little bit of Kwanzaa history in, after it, after it begins to spread on the West Coast out of the families and communities of us, it begins to slowly come across the country. In fact, it really hits in the East Coast, where? Newark, right? Close to where you are right now, Karen, the great Amiri Baraka, of course, and you start talking about the Congress of African Peoples, the Committee for a Unified Newark. That's really where you see Kwanzaa grounded. There are there are spots all over the country, but West Coast, you've got us, Karenganil. East Coast, you've got New York, New Jersey, you've got uh, 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 Mary Baraka, who is a cultural genius. That brother, I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm glad to have been got to been able to got to get to know that brother a little bit over the arc of the years before he made transition. What a what a mind. Not without contradictions, but we all got contradictions. But that brother, you know, a lot of the people now, the Imanis and the Nias and the people who name these principles that are Kwanzaa principles as well, these Kiswahili names, that comes out of the, the cradle of, of that work that they're doing there. And between California and New York, Illinois, particularly Chicago, you got Baba Haki in them. You know, shout out to Haki Mabudi, still holding it down. Institute for Positive Education. Um, Sister Safisha, his wife, and all the people at the IPE, and all, they're doing the work there. Baba Hannibal Afrique, as I mentioned, Conrad Worrell and them. You know, you've got them anchored there. And these are the these are the, these are the institutions, famous institutions like in New York City, the East, Baba Jetu Weusi. I mean, you know, you can read uh, Kwasi Kanadu's book, A View from the East, Baba Kwasi, brilliant brother at Colgate University. Very important scholar, but more importantly, many of the people still doing Kwanzaa from their days in the East. My, my friend and brother, Segun Shabaka, uh, of course, you know, Boys and Girl High School had the African uh, uh, street festival every summer comes out of the Kawaita uh, organizations. Uh, my sister in, in, in Philadelphia, Maisha Ngoza, who heads the Kwanzaa committee there. All that work. I mean, these are in D.C. The man, uh, Ishaka Musa Barashango. If you want, again, we talked about African people in European holidays, a mental genocide. They go back to 1971. Baba, um, uh, Baba, uh, Baba Ishaka Musa Barashango. The Kwanzaa begins to spread, and it's interesting. Because if you're in the communities that are doing this work, then you know about it. If you're not in the communities, in, in, in the black community that are doing this work, you may not know about it. So as Mays writes, he says, I was astonished to find out that Kwanzaa was there and not there at the same time. We just had an elder mate transition in Nashville. Uh, my elder, our elder, uh, Kwame Leo Lillard, who goes back to the early days of the Nashville sit-in movement. We talk about Diane Nash and John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. Baba Kwame was right there. He was youngster coming into that movement. My God, he just made transition. My African name, my Gikuyu name, Kimathi, uh, was a Gikuyu name out of Kenya, uh, named after, I was named after Dedan Kamathi, uh, one of the leaders of the Kenyan Land Freedom Army, the Mau Mau. I received that name formally in a ritual that was prepared at Meharry Medical College at, at a Kwanzaa. Kwesi Nelson, your uh, 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 priestess, uh, made the formal naming. And I, that was at a Kwanzaa, I don't know, 24, 24 years ago now, I think. 
I have to go back and think. But at any rate, my point is this. As it spreads, you've got this idea then, and I mentioned, I just named some of the institutions that spread it. Uh, then you get up into the 1980s and you begin to see, wow, this thing is not going away because a couple of other things happen. School teachers, particularly these young sisters, start taking it in the schools. Oh my God start taking it into schools. Now, if you were like me and you may have learned, uh, I know I learned my first, I learned what a dreidel was in the festival lights and Hanukkah at school. They showed us that. I ain't learned about Kwanzaa from school. I ain't had none of those young cats in there mixing up, none of those young sisters in there and brothers doing it, but they were doing it in places like New York. They were doing it in places like St. Louis. And then they began, let me finish, cooperative economics, Ujima. The idea with Kwanzaa is if you produce something, you should produce whatever we use with Kwanzaa. If you're going to make a canara, if you're going to make these candles, if you're going to create these materials, we're going we're gonna to exchange gifts. You should make the gifts or give books. or So this creates a, a kind of economic floor for Kwanzaa. And what they see by the 1980s is people going to start trying to make money off it. So Conrad and Baba uh, Hannibal and them, they come together. This is World's World. This is a collection of his... Uh, essays. He wrote an essay in 1986 called Coming Together. And in this essay, Coming Together, Conrad Worrell, who was at that time the chairman of the National Black United Front out of Chicago, but nationwide, is like, we have to have family development, economic development, political development, cultural development. And they had, oh, well, I'll come, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put a pin in this for a second. They do it because they see people are trying to make money. Our Kwanzaa ain't got our interest at, at heart. So they start having Kwanzaa Expos. Kwanzaa Expos. What does that mean? That means at the Javits Center in New York. That means in St. Louis. That means in Chicago. That means in Oakland. They bring together black vendors, black producers, and they say, get your stuff from them. They try to do it during the week of Kwanzaa, but that's not a good fit. So they start backing it up into early December, and they say, this is a better fit. And these things go on for decades, these Kwanzaa Expos, which began as early as 1981. I think the Javits Center in New York was 1981, the first one. So very quickly, to summarize in terms of the spread, it's going out, it's coming out of black nationalist communities. It bubbles over into non-nationalist organizations because people are bringing their children. They want to know more, you know, and people, you know, 1970s, 80s, people start wearing their hair natural, you know, this kind of thing. You begin to, they begin to catch on. So then you see teachers taking into the schools. You see black cultural centers at colleges and universities start having Kwanzaa. And, it, and so they don't have it during the break because we're on break by the time you get to where we are right now. They start having what they call pre-Kwanzaa's. We did it for years. They still do it at the Frank Hale Center in Ohio State, Columbus, uh, Ohio. They, a lot of these places have pre-Kwanzaa's. That last week after Thanksgiving, just before you go home, have a huge pre-Kwanzaa. So it begins to spread there. People are going... In the organizational formation, the Congress of African People meeting in Atlanta. Then they go to Gary, 1972. The, the, it's exchanging now. People are beginning to get, you know, this momentum. It's getting this momentum. So very quickly, NIA, purpose. That is the one, two, three, four, fifth day of Kwanzaa. NIA, purpose. What is that one? To make our collective vocation the building and developing of our community in order to restore our people to their traditional greatness. That's tough because we were never one people. And even the people inside the societies didn't always agree. And this is pre-capitalist. 
So we get pulled into a field of violence, like me and Mike, as Mike was saying, we're not going back to where we were, but we're trying to draw on the best of the traditions to move forward. And we're not doing it to the point that you raised, Karen, to compare ourselves to other people. I love the way Riketty Wimby put it. Riketty Wimby is a sister, very important sister out of Chicago, lived in New York for many years, uh, now uh, back and forth, different places, Mississippi, New York. She uh, created something called, helped with, with the community called the Calendar Project. This is the book that we did called The Preliminary Challenge, The African World History Project. Jacob Carruthers and Leon Harris were the editors. John Clark wrote the foreword. I have a chapter in here. This came out. Um, Ricchetti uh, wrote a piece called The Calendar Project. There's The Calendar Project, chapter five. This sister is a master of the Egyptian language. She took on the question, she and her comrades, of time and space. How do we reorient ourselves? And I love what Ricchetti said. She said what Jacob Carruthers always said. We're not doing this recovery project to try to go back in time and live there. We are doing this not to compare ourselves and create black equivalents of white folk, not engaged in racial cosplay. No, we are doing this so we can orient ourselves in the world so that we can live fully in time and space so that we can create a space to heal from the wounding and to move forward in human history in our full selves. That is no small aim. In fact, you could say that's the ultimate aim. So purpose, that that, that gives us our purpose. It's very important to understand. Marcus Garvey, well, I'll talk about Garvey in a second. I'll go to the next two. Kuumba, creativity, that's the sixth night. To do always as much as we can and the way we can in order to leave our community more beautiful and more beneficial than we inherited it. How can you argue with that? If that is made up, then make it up. <laughs> please, please understand. This is what we're talking about, kuumba, creativity. That means that well, we, people want to go back to the way we were. No. Once you're grounded in the way we were, your mind will open up into new possibilities. Think about the song James Weldon Johnson and James Rosemont Johnson, Johnson composed, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Every time I hear a new remix, I have to pause. My niece, um, Sania, has done a remix. My mother, my 92-year-old mother in Houston, they recorded her talking about family and community and young people. And then this child takes the, takes the tape and mixes it at the beginning and does a new version of Lift Every Voice and Sing as a Kwanzaa song. That's what I'm, that's Kuumba. It's creativity. You ain't supposed to do it the way that every generation before you did it. But once you tap into that momentum, now you put your thing on it and we'll see whether the thing endures. Finally, the last night of Kwanzaa is Imani. Faith. Imani as in Imani Temple. Remember the brother who was here for many years in DC, black Catholic. To believe with all our heart in our people, our parents, our teachers, our leaders, and the righteousness of the victory and the victory of our struggle. Now, on the Imani night, the first Kwanzaa, they did an all-night party. It's usually where you have the feast. They have citywide Kwanzaa. I got my name at a citywide Kwanzaa. My mother was elevated along with several other elders as a queen mother about 15, 20 years ago uh, at the Nashville citywide Kwanzaa, Baba uh, Umar Jute. And then uh, big citywide Kwanzaa, D.C., which is why I was going to, this is the other one I said. This is the D.C. guide for the citywide Kwanzaa. They recognize the ancestors. You pour libation, you recognize all the ancestors that, that made transition during that period. And then every night, somebody else takes 
a day of Kwanzaa in the citywide Kwanzaa in D.C., or what they call Banneker City. Same thing in Baltimore, same thing in Philly. That's what Maisha and them do. It's all, same thing in Atlanta, you know, uh, 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 Baba Jamoke and the folks down in Atlanta. Same thing in, in Indianapolis. On the front page of the Indianapolis Star last uh, last year, uh, Sister uh, Mashariki Jawanza, in cooperation with Indianapolis Public Schools, Indianapolis Library, she was made the queen mother of Kwanzaa. And there's a big picture above the fold the next day. Why? Because it's mainstream now, which presents then a bit of a challenge. Let me wind this to a close. I know I went on, I went on with this. This is what Conrad was talking about in World's World. Conrad's thing was, look, when they had their Karamu Ya Amani on January 1st, they attract 2,000 people. They were attracting 2,000 people back in the 80s in Chicago. You have these huge kind of feasts. You do these celebrations. And there are other pieces if you want to read more about it. I'll end with this uh, for now. Because um, you know he made a Kwanzaa stamp. <laughs> right. This is the Kwanzaa uh Kwanzaa official book. This is uh, they did two editions. This is the commemorative edition, not the first edition, but the one when they when they released the stamp, the U.S. Post Office. Uh, this is the one that Dr. Karenga uh, wrote. Uh, Kwanzaa, a celebration of family, community, and culture. Now you'll notice here on the Kwanzaa stamp that you get that the colors of the flag, the so-called Pan-African flag, are black, red, and green. That's a slight variation on the original flag that was uh, created by the Universal. Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. That's Marcus Garvey. Uh, that's Marcus Garvey, Amy Jakes Garvey, uh, their children. Um, in fact, Marcus Garvey Jr. just made transition in Florida. They had his funeral. You know, we all attended on Zoom. We watched there and they lay him. They, they laid the red, black and green flag over him. The colors of the UNIA flag, the Pan-African flag, are red, black and green. Very quickly. Red for, you know, Karinga talks about struggle, right? We Red for the blood of the people, the struggle, you know, our people with the unified, black for the people. And green for the beautiful future, the beautiful future, the vision of the future, red, black, and green. Now, I said, why do you need a flag? This story, and you have to go to the Marcus Garvey papers to see most of the details in it. But if you uh, get the Garvey papers, volume, uh, volume one, has some of the FBI documents where they were surveilling, talking about, they talking about this flag. They saw it somewhere in 1918 in New York. They say it was a talk. Here's the thing. It was adopted in 1920 at the official UNIA meeting, Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. There was a song that came out in 1920 called Every Race Has a Flag But the Coon. Every Race Has a Flag But the Coon. Very popular. Will Helen and Fred Health. It was sheet music for 30 years. For 30 years, this song was not only popular, they would sell out sheet music. It was all over the country. What a rave. It followed in the wake of another song uh, published in 1896 called All Coons Look Alike to Me. This is the coon sheet music. Y'all go and go on Google and look up some of these things. Look up the title, Every Race Has a Flag But the Coon. Black people were livid livid and you know what some negro said yes coon music but when black people sing it and perform there are jobs for black performers i want y'all think about that in this netflix generation is you you're going you're going to you're going to make an excuse for a culturally inferior product because you got some jobs no the song is every race has a flag but the coon
So what happens, you see arguments in the black press. Henry Arnett, whose father, uh, Bishop Arnett, was the 17th bishop of the AME church. Henry Arnett is at Wilberforce. He said, we should get us a flag. We should give us a flag and we should put the pictures of Frederick Douglass on it and Booker T. Washington and we'll put a tree on it. And then black people start writing back in the press, fool, you got a flag. It's the American flag. What? <laughs> yeah, no. Nah. Mm -mm. In fact, if you want a flag like that, why don't you make the flag and give it to Monroe Trotter? He's a man without a country because Trotter has been beefing with, uh, with Woodrow Wilson and Booker T. Washington. And them. He ain't got no country, so give him a flag. But then you see that the U.S. flag is being embraced around the same time by the Klan. That's the flag of white supremacy. I'm not a flag waver. In fact, if you're going to show me an American flag, I kind of like the one that David Hammond. Let me see if this is Dave. Do I have David Hammond here? Uh, no, this is actually Faith Ringold. This is from uh, the exhibition catalog, Soul of a Nation. This is the British version. The, they did one in America, too. But you see how they use red, black, and green. This is Faith Ringold, who's still alive, the great uh, artist. You see, here, she's got one here called the Black Nation. She's dividing up and got the names of where black people live, the United States of Africa. She said, we ain't got to go back to Africa. We can do it right here. Now, the one I'm thinking about is the one you've seen, Karen. Everybody has probably seen it. And I'll kind of end with this so we can clean up. David Hammond. If you're going to show me an American, I got a big one like this somewhere in storage. That's David Hammond's one. That's the one that's owned by the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, but I think it may have been uh, on display at the Studio Museum here. In fact, this catalog is uh, from the Studio Museum in Harlem. But yeah, I mean, red, black, and green, right? As uh, Roy Ayers and Ubiquity, my man, uh, Baba Kaba, a uh, soul singer who does a show here in D.C. on WPFW, he starts his show every Monday afternoon with Roy Ayers and Ubiquity. Red, black, and green, if you think about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Y'all probably know that song. Boom, 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 boom. Roy Ayers, red, black, and green. So when you have Kwanzaa, you had a red, black, and green. So you end with Imani. You end with the big feast. You end with the community recognition. Now politicians be coming to Kwanzaa. You always pour respect to the ancestors. We'd be doing it right now in New York if we didn't have this plague. And all of this then together becomes a ritual moment that joins with Juneteenth, Emancipation Day. Black History Month, Martin Luther King birthday, Malcolm X birthday, all of the times that we have created these spaces, not just in response to these white spaces or not just black ways of uh, marking moments of being together during white holidays, but as a place where we can begin to theorize, as Jacob Carruthers would say, turning the world right side up. That's why this Africa People say that Africa is upside down. There ain't no up in space. So you can look at it like this, or you can look at it the way the Egyptians had the word for it and go up into Africa. That's, the, that's why uh, we. Uh, that's why our uh, brother Osborne Ford, who is, just became an ancestor out of Chicago, incredible artist, brother Osborne, Baba Osborne, uh, created that, that cover for the book that we published. So I'll stop with that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, no, no, thank you. No, um... You know, this is our last class of the year. Uh, ironically, several months ago when we started this, we were doing it and taping it. It's the exact same, by the way. <laughs> and then I would post it and we did a bunch of little ones. And I said, I'm going to save the one for January 2nd for John Hope Franklin's birthday because we did a whole thing on John Hope Franklin. And I posted that like five months ago, you know, scheduled it. And I looked at the, you know, because 
now it's a thing, this this class. And I was like, wow, January 2nd. Interesting. Look at the ancestors. So well, I, I should mention this. We missed a couple of things. Just very quickly, this is 30 seconds. Last Saturday was Car G. Woodson's birthday. I completely, we both blanked on it. I know, shout out to the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. They did a great ritual. There's a brother who plays Carter Woodson. If y'all look for him on YouTube, it will knock your socks off. He's literally playing Carter Woodson, but you feel Woodson and he's using Woodson's words. So we whispered, uh, uh, Chancellor Williams, Bennettsville, South Carolina, with my man Cedric. Cedric, man, Cedric was the director of our freedom schools for many years. Uh, in he's, coming in. he's coming in. So oh, say it's coming. Good. Oh, beautiful. Don't, don't, so, yeah. so that's don't. Chance Williams. Uh, Sheikh Jope, his birthday is this coming up week, the great Senegalese scholar. And then finally, the day before John Hope Franklin was born in Renterville, Oklahoma, uh, John Henry Clark, the other, he was born in just outside of Union Springs, Alabama. So Clark and John Hope Franklin, who we kind of think of in tandem, both come in the world those first two days of January. Well, we honor them. And then Coming back from the new year, you know, hopefully we'll have an announcement. Uh, and I just want to thank everybody in here. Thumbs up. I see y'all. We got folks in here from, uh, I just writing it down. Uh, Linda Brown from Kigali. I hope I'm saying that right. Rwanda. Oh, Rwanda. Uh, yeah, we got folks in from London, Bermuda, someone from Bini, Nigeria. And let me welcome in my brother, Seth, uh, who said he's, He's in Brazil, and now you just told me you know him. And again, this is random. I'll just say, you know, we have a spot open. Let me know if you want to ask a question. Harriet DMing me, you know, randomly. And let me welcome said in Brazil. Welcome to in class with Car. Said, look, let me see how I said. Um, what do you say, Boadia? I don't remember. Can't hear you. Uh-uh. Un Not yet. Unmute. Said. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? This uh, is yeah. Bonjour. Right yeah. Oh, boy, Taji. Yeah. Good morning. Good afternoon. What's up? How are you, man? <laughs> I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, that's the age. Who, man, who did that art behind you, man, over your, uh, your left shoulder? The uh, one over there. Oh, that's a, a Sada poster. And, oh yeah, uh, I'm sorry. That's no, a, no, I'm, the art, the children's art over there. Oh, over here. Oh, that's my son. You you remember Lamar? You met yeah. him just a couple months old. He was a baby, baby. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, he's thriving, man. He's doing good. He might that's run good. You didn't escape, man. You didn't escape. You died. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. I just went to another farm, man. Really? <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. I just went to another, you know, another place to serve. For those of you who don't know, man, this brother right here for many years led Philadelphia Freedom Schools. He started in the Children's Defense Fund of Freedom Schools as a student in South Carolina, but he uh, was the center of our Freedom Schools work, man. Wait till Ashere and Shanice and all don't find out. <laughs> you know, he's still doing things. Go ahead, bro, man. So glad to see you. What's going well, on? first, I just thank you, Karen, for, for what you're doing. I yeah. feel like... Um, I, you know, I mean, I wasn't the center of anything, you know, not to correct you, but I, I for uh, five, six, if I include the Children's Defense Fund, my job, my proud job was to just open the doors for buildings to make sure that Dr. Carr was able to do no. what he does. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in my forties now, so I, I accepted oh. that this, 
is uh, uh it's just my thing you know what i'm saying so i you know i i kind of whatever it is wherever i am i i came in through the back door anyway so you know i just like to keep the back doors open so <laughs> you know what i'm saying you can do your thing which i think is a phenomenal work and it's um it's so man it's so it's it's equally bizarre and amazing to watch this happening right now and to hear all the names of the places that Karen was calling out that are uh, watching you, you know, continue to do this work. So thank you, Karen, for oh, thank you. Hey, what you doing down there, man? I'm going to just ask him. I was just, no, I'm just going to ask you, like, because Brazil is on fire. Um, so <laughs> there's a lot. No, seriously, there's like some some serious civil rights, um, egregious things going on in Brazil, particularly as it relates to black people. Brazil has more black people anywhere in the diaspora outside of the continent of Africa herself. And black people are under siege in Brazil and no one's really talking about it. So, you know, I don't know if it's safe for you to talk about, but can you give us a little bit of like what's happening in Brazil right now, especially as it relates to black journalists and activists? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I can, you know, I can say, I can pretty much say what I want. So, uh, you know, it's my, you know, it's kind of my job to do that. Um, you know, because it's a, it's a, um, it's an interesting sort of thing to travel and to exercise your blackness in different places outside of your own country. It's just, it's just really interesting. It's a, it's kind of a mix of like time traveling and traveling through dimensions at the same time, because uh, I'm not their black. They don't always know it. When I first meet, when I meet people on the street, I'm dressed like everybody else. They think I'm their black when they find that I'm not, I'm somebody else's black then you know they kind of got to respect my my imperial masters or whatever no, so right. it just becomes different they, they treat me different it's very much the same way of traveling to other places as a, as a, a with an american passport so i can say you know and i have to say things all, oftentimes here when i'm with my my people here um but you're right and i'm really happy to hear you say that because that means that 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 is a information that's becoming a part of people's reality outside of brazil and um, is extremely important. Um, and uh, Brazil has, you know, uh, the one thing that a lot of people do know is that Brazil has the largest black population outside of, uh, in, of any country except Nigeria, uh, which says a lot because Nigeria got a lot of black people. <laughs> so, uh, so, and the number of black people also sort of creates um, a puzzle in the mind because, you know, the, the, these numbers are based off of census and census are based off of categories and categories are based off of what people are willing to accept and identify themselves as. So the number keeps growing, not because the more black people are being born, but because people are learning that they are black and the myth of racial democracy was never uh, a real thing. And the world is becoming more connected. Um, I didn't think that there would be anything to connect with Quanta here, but uh, then I realized uh, that uh, Kwanzaa is becoming very, very popular here. So there's a verve of um, Afrocentrism that sort of goes along with, it's not something that we know very well because the United States has sort of always been segregated, mm. um, but a lot of other countries haven't. So the, oh, the Black identity for a lot of places in Brazil, which is a really complex issue because it has the most black people is is a new thing being black is kind of relatively 
new in a way, although of course it's not, um, but the black identity, the social identity <clears throat> is new. And so, you know, it really, really is just sort of the result of different paths from uh, enslavement and emancipation. And so uh, the, the one drop rule was basically reversed and up, sort of flipped mm. in Brazil than in the United States. And so that can, that's a way to sort of begin to explain uh, why people are sort of coming into blackness here now, although they've always been black. So there, there's, there was integration, law, integration and the myth of the racial democracy is one that uh, has a very long history of sort of painting miscegenation and racial mixing as a sort of para paradise of of racial, basically no race, although a very strong racial hierarchy existed the whole time. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, all of that facade is, you know, being broken down and um, it's, it's a big revolution sort of happening. And within that, white supremacy and the violence that comes along with it is increasing as well. Right. So it's a very dangerous place. It's a very dangerous place. <laughs> That's and, all and, I can say. And, 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 and it's from a state abetted state terror. I mean, it's, it's oh, yeah. State, right? Well, yeah. And a state that for if you are, a, you know, if you exist as a coming from a white lineage in the state, it's even more than the state. I mean, this this country had a um, uh, they were basically under, um, you know, the terrorist state for the longest time. They just had democracy only recently um and, and then so, they basically after they bodied lula and the sister that came after me oh yeah no this is why it's new like it's new it's all those things that would happen after um a country comes out of uh you know sort of a more recent colonial rule um it's very violent and there's just more to come you know this the, the state that i live in is bahia and bahia was sort of had the most black population i mean it it's it's, 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 it's a black state. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. Uh, and it's always been that way. It's like uh, it's like a gigantic Atlanta. Um, uh, said, I want you to continue because I want you like, say, I, I want to tell, tell everybody, remember when the summer of 2005, when we went down there to uh, yeah. Salvador to do curriculum work, and we had all these school teachers from all over the, the country, but they were most all, all black. We were in Salvador. You sent me with that piece that you did, the photo montage with yeah, yeah, where, yeah. where's my people come first. <laughs> and those <laughs> black kids as in Brazil saw all those black kids from the United States. When I tell you, brother, that's one of one of my most powerful moments in my life, man. That you are the one who introduced a lot of them to us through that conversation we had. But anyway, to Karen's point, do you see it getting worse before it gets better? Because it seems like things are escalated. Assassinated the sister last year, was it? And they, I mean, yeah, Marielle. Yes. Um, I mean, she was a she was kind of like a, like a picture. I'm at my wife's desk right now, so that's Marielle. Yes, uh, yes. She was a like a like a like a local like a local congressperson, young black lesbian woman, and uh, she was murdered by. Um, there's some officials from the state and they're, they're still under investigation. Uh, yeah. So this is what happened, you know, when you speak out like this and um, she was specifically had a lot to say about the police violence in Rio. Um, you know, it's a thing, man, you know, I'm black guy, grew up in the United States. 
you know, happy to have all these milestones and have all these war stories or whatever. But when I get here, it's, it's not even remotely close. It's just say? like, it's a whole nother level of gangster. You're real. And so it just sort of, you know, the to see people, um, to see people embrace their blackness, it just tells you a whole lot about what it what it must mean and what uh, what the other choices are. And so it, you know, for me personally, it, it gives me a different sort of view. I have to sort of adjust my compass and my, you know, square to as where where exactly is the center of blackness in the on the globe and i believe that it's not necessarily in the united states i don't oh, necessarily think black, black 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 north americanness is the center uh or necessarily needs to be the center right now no of the, the sort of black global view of the future if we are if are talking only to people who identify with other black people in the globe right you know right no question yeah. hey man let me ask you um do they do they have is, is there any echo or continuing connection with uh abdidastos nacimento and the work that they did back in the 50s 60s and 70s the black theater movement black art yeah definitely i mean these are these are a lot of their cultural um you know sort of their cultural pillars in a lot of ways there's a there's a lot of a lot of there's a lot of reference back to it i think um it's it's just it's it's sort of hard to sort of calculate this based on how how we see things because you know i'm first in my family to go to college but most of the people that i know have fam you know blacks in the united states have sort of a long history of of this type of thing but here blacks were only able to begin to even be able to go to college, you know, in the last 20 years mm -hmm. and graduate school and whatnot. So as far as people writing about it and sort of contextualizing it this way and arch archiving and just sort of telling the story of folks oh, like Abigius, it's new. But that doesn't mean that his the work that they did, it doesn't exist in the cultural sort of world because it does. It's what makes up. It's the source of sort of the reference of blackness. But it's kind of like moving. It's like a little bit of a quantum leap because if you ask a young person, they'll have that, but they also have the internet and they have the whole world <laughs> as their black reference and the things that they create too. So it's it's an interesting sort of moment. You really got to be flexible with how you view how things are supposed to progress when you look at how people, especially younger generations, grow into their black politic because it's not as simple as just sort of reading the history. Um, and it, it includes things like music and other types of cultural references. And you have this generation of new scholars, too, who are in the university, mm -hmm. but that are in a very precarious position because the government is trying to um, basically eliminate all of those social programs that have only existed for less than a couple of decades. Yeah, I remember they Lula, just Lula brought in. It just happened. It just yeah. happened. Uh, the, just the quota program to uh, to require a certain amount of college slots for black people. And mind you, you have to always remember that this country is mostly black. And when right. I say mostly, <laughs> I mean like, oh, 60 percent 
of the people who are identifying as black, which means it's probably another 20 or 30% more who's still black, but are passing as white or Damn, allowing, see, that's a quantum leap, man, from even it's a, it's a different, it's a, you got, it's not the same. It no. is the same, but it's not the same. Wow. I mean, no, because I mean, just, just the fact that you, you're saying that now well over half are consciously claiming blackness. It's a little bit of everything because at the same time that if you if you looked if you looked in Google or whatever and said who's Afro Brazilian, it's gonna say ten percent. Oh, of course. Those the, but those yeah. are the people who can't be anything other than black because they're too right. dark and their <laughs> right. hair is too nappy. Right. You're gonna have 49 50 percent that are called pardo, which means brown. So if you took the United States, the population would, of blacks right. in the United States, and you separated the people who are the paper bag test and all the light skinned people. It, it would be like the light-skinned people calling themselves a different race, which apparently it seems like a lot of people on Twitter want to hey, happen. Man, are they still <laughs> lightening up the black America? No, when we, when we landed in Salvador, they had a Beyonce that was about two shades lighter than what she was. It was putting that yeah. same mess in South I Africa. I know exactly what you're talking about, too. And by the way, if it's the same person, Daniela Mercury, who's completely white, her parents are German, uh, she did a Wakanda video and called herself the Queen of Wakanda, but that's another story. But at the same time that this is happening, white people are also learning whatever strategies that they need to do to maintain their whiteness too. So it's actually becoming where, whereas before it was a little easier to be white because the one drop rule here is if you have a trace of whiteness, like skin, if your nose is a little more longer or your hair is, especially hair, is a little straightener, you'll be accepted out of blackness. Not necessarily white, but out of blackness. So that's why Pardo is so big. But yeah. white people have to maintain their power. So their sense of race, their their, you know, their the technology of race is also um, you know, they're they're increasing how they use that too. So <laughs> that's why it just sort of that's so that's kind of the path to blackness as African Americans identify with, like black black pride. Uh, I see. I see. You know, it's interesting, man. I remember back in like 90s before before that cats like anderson thompson all the people man you know would come to brazil do a lot of work and then like say got more popular here in the states so guys like michael hanchard and them were writing about it but but what you just tapped into brother is really where it's at i mean beyond looking at for ways to divide us you know ways of building this common culture and i'm so grateful to hear and i know karen is to, to hear that young people are beginning to figure out ways to connect and to gain some momentum. I can only imagine what that's going to mean in terms of a moment of confrontation. Because I mean, it's gonna be in their hands. We know this. We can we can pretend like we we are in charge of things all we want nah. to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think, and this is one of those things. Again, I'm glad you guys are doing this, and how, of course, it integrates with all the social media. Because if you really want to know, that's where you're going to find it. It's also where you're going to find a lot of the Afro Brazilians who speak English and who would be able to bless us with the information you know because we don't speak portuguese and so they in that way too that they, they, they are leaders um some of my great friends uh some of my great friends uh still to this day that i met in 2011 the first time i came were students at the stevie biko institute oh, you visited there. yeah um and so that you know they you know they are they're you know they're no joke man the the the, the 
folks here are no joke. The young people here are no joke. They ain't punks either. Um, <laughs> so I think that there is a lot to watch watch for that's coming out of here. But it's really hard too. And I think that this is a place. This is an intersection. Um, so we're trying to build bridges, you know. And I, I will say, just you know, go back to the Kwanzaa conversation. If you just I did a good, I search today in, in Instagram, I think, uh, Kwanzaa Brazil. Just search for it. There may not be a lot of have people using the hashtags, but it'll give you sort of a trail to sort of see because the symbolism is so strong, in, uh, including the principles. And people do, we, we do with it what we do, especially those of us who need these tools. And you will find that Brazil is a place that will make good use of these tools, the symbolism, mm -hmm. the words, the meanings and everything. Um, so I, I think you will find another dimension there. And it's the same thing. It synchronizes with James Brown, funk music. Yes, sir. Um, uh, anything on Netflix that has black characters because there's a cabal here with the media. There's like one in media station that you can trace back to Princess Isabella oh, <laughs> oh, family. Oh, no. no, serious, the newspaper and everything. So in those dimensions, what comes out of the United States and probably to a lesser extent, um, the, you know, the UK or Europe uh, has a certain type of meaning here too so there's a lot of symbolism um that gets used in mind uh in ways that i think we should not miss out on seeing what the result of that is here just because we speak a different language mm. it's just too it's it's amazing oh brother man can it's made my whole you, look you opening up there that's our that's our man in latin america karen <laughs> go ahead you mute it you mute it I just said I just sent him a private chat because we got we got to get some of them people on the ground there a platform so that they can speak. This is the the genesis of of this. Again, we're we're on this space. By the way, all the folk in here, just give the thumbs up for the algorithm's sake. But there'll be a time when none of that'll matter. They'll, How about that? Won't matter about an algorithm. Won't matter about a, a like or a dislike. And you know, um, we're coming to that place because I think, you know, those who, who, who need to be here, who are supposed to be here, oh, deserve yeah. to have a space where they can talk freely, listen freely, and not be uh, sifting through uh, people who don't belong here. No question. Uh, and that brother is, man, you talk about divine order. That brother right there, his partner, their, their child, they were at um, one of his students. She's now on faculty at Bowie State. She got her PhD at uh, Ohio State. One of, one of our students came out of Freedom Schools. And uh, that's the last time I've seen him. Uh, we went to, um, Emmanuel, he's from South Carolina, Emmanuel AME church where Dylan Ruff sh shot, shot up the folk. His wedding was there. I poured libation at that wedding. Uh, Clementa Pinky, Pinky. I'm saying that, that brother right there is one of the great creative geniuses and he is as good as gold. And like you said, the next generation last week, Karen, when you had, uh, Kathleen Collins, daughter on you know you sent me to the bookshelves because you know these are the two books <laughs> that she published right notes notes from a black woman's diary that's a lot of her writing collected works and then her short stories whatever happened in a racial love so you know kathleen collins is real good friends with hailey garima i did not know that oh, oh yeah they were very close and so in fact she lectured at howard hailey i think hailey has got some footage of that but 
This is the energy that Kathleen Collins had. I mean, just tearing those walls down and to hear, man, yeah, the ancestors are in charge of this, right? <laughs> you know, and that was through a friend of mine who is representing her daughter. It's like her mom had a film that didn't come out and then she, yeah. There are no mistakes. All right. Um, and let me thank again everybody who's in class today. We will not be in class live next week, but we will have a class. So, you know. Yay! That's right. Because <laughs> we, we have some stuff to do between now. Yeah, we got to get some All stuff. Right. Let me bring in Marvin and Michelle. Uh, are they ready? Yes. Yeah, we're ready. Hey, hey, what's up, y'all? What's happening? How are you? Can you see? Oh, yeah. I want to know what those flags are behind you, man. Oh. I was in the military and it's um, just for when I was going away, when I would move to a different place, they, they give you stuff. What branch is, I don't know that. Uh, uh, I was in the air force for 20 Oh, years. okay. Air force. That's the second week in a row. We had some folks with the air force. Y'all, y'all in that tough branch. I ain't trying to uh, say nothing about the rest of them. Where are y'all? Where are y'all, where y'all at? Uh, right now we're in Morristown, New Jersey, just outside of Philly. Oh yeah. No question. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm originally from, Passaic, New Jersey, which is close to North by Karen's area. <laughs> I can hear it. We said Karen. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know what? Also, we probably crossed paths before because you always mention First World Alliance, African yes. Echoes. Listen, I was there, backpack. I went by myself because most of my friends didn't want to stay. So I stopped taking them and I would just go by myself <laughs> to get the knowledge and, and the information. In fact, in Passaic, we have Mount Moriah Church and many of your mentors and friends would come and teach dr jeffries oh, um um dr J uh, professor james smalls smalls the man uh, absolutely uh rosalind jeffries oh yeah and many others. so we basically would have them you would get um going back in the day um a uh, baba bob law you know oh, you had bob law well, we had all they would they would just come through. I mean, and shout Man, out Bob Law was why I was almost late to work every morning when I would work at the NLACP Legal Defense Fund, listening to Bob Law three four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 exactly. Um, you know, I, I'm person. Uh, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for about thirty one years. Wow. High school, right, and for sake, and I also teach at college. I teach your subject, Africana studies, philosophy, as well as U.S. history. Our subject, brother. What, what what schools? Well, I'm at Ramapo College. Oh, Ramapo, yeah. I'm also at Union County College and Montclair State University. Oh, Montclair, do you? Uh, he's a keen. Do you know? Um, um. Oh, I'm sorry, James Conyers. I'm familiar with him. I yeah, don't know Conyers, him, but I'm very familiar with him. And my man at Essex County. Uh, uh, uh hmm, mm -mm, started. He directs the Africana Studies Center there at Essex County, there in downtown Newark. Well, one uh, of my mentors taught there for years, and Karen knows him, Dr. Linworth Gunther. He was yes, yes, Linworth. Lenny. That's yeah. my Akio Akio Califani. That's what oh, I'm no, not not familiar, but yes, but Dr. But Dr. Gunther for sure. That was my yeah. mentor. In fact, I met him because one day one of my friends said this brother is speaking at the Paul Robeson Center at Rutgers. So I went there. And I listened to this brother and I wrote him a letter. Within three days, he wrote me a letter back and said, listen, anything you want and need, um, just call me up. And we developed a beautiful friendship as a result of that. Robeson at Rutgers, the Robeson yeah. Center. Hey, hey, Karen, watch this. 
the road Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, was originally named the Queens College. The Queens College for Queen Charlotte. <laughs> but anyway, <Wow. laughs> okay. I just wanted to say, um, first of all, Gunther was the first Dr. Gunther, first person to ever awaken my mind at Drew University. He was the absolute first professor uh, that that made me think differently about the world. So I thank him and Marvin. Michelle said. You don't celebrate Christmas, so this is your Kwanzaa gift to come uh -oh. in. Today. Yes, yes, it's my yeah, absolutely. This is this is my my Kwanzaa gift. In fact, I, you know, it's interesting. When I was about eighteen years old, um, I mean, I was big on Christmas. I mean, I would send letters to Santa Claus every year, put it in the mailbox. In fact, my mother, um, God rest her soul, she basically saved the letters that they printed it in the newspaper. My letter to Santa Claus. But what I at a really? I realized, I said, well. At some point, Christ left Christmas. How about that, brother? How right. about that? Enlighten us, man. Enlighten yeah. us. I mean, but before, as you continue, if you don't mind, weave in some of the uh, local Kwanzaa history. I'm sure that you've been to many there in the in the region. Oh, oh, you 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 you've mentioned you mentioned the Jacob Javits Center. Oh, Javits. Yeah, tell me about it, brother. And actually, also New Jersey Pack in Newark. Yeah, right there. Yearly, they would they would have their thing, and are you? Um, yeah, so they would have their thing there. So those are the basic two. But actually, in the city of Passaic, we actually would have ours. This goes back. Shout out to Madonna's International Funeral Home. We had the Kwanzaa celebration in the basement of the funeral home. Come on, man. You sound like Mike Harriet. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. And it was, I mean, it, it was amazing. In fact, each year in Passaic, I do for, for the city of Passaic Kwanzaa. You know, so we do an informational thing. Now, it's, it's interesting because it started off as one of my um students, um, uh, Afro Dominican sister. Yeah. She, well, well, one of my her mother called me to basically do it, and she found out about me because when I was teaching U.S. history at the high school, she said her daughter would come home every day because she wanted to go through the history books and prove me wrong. She said, but on the way, she learned so much about history. So she oh. said she would always talk about me. So she called me and said, did I want to do Kwanzaa? And I said, absolutely. So I would do it at City Hall. It started small, and each year it gets bigger and bigger. Oh, this is beautiful. The citywide joint. People yes, come from all over. It's a citywide, right. They do it at the City Hall, but also the NAACP also does it as well. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you've seen you've you've really seen it emerge and change over the years of the arc of time. And then being at the center of that work, man, what's, what's, what's your sense of how people are? We how are people? beginning to embrace and think about think about ourselves. Well what what I what I see as a transition is folks to a couple a couple of things. The first thing I see is that it was a slow progression. You know, of course mm. it's you talked about either you if you were in the community and you either you knew about it or you yeah. didn't within right. the same community. So right. that's how it worked. But ultimately right. what we begin to see is folks kind of moving away from what I've seen the material aspects of Christmas. My goodness. And then kind of blending right into Kwanzaa. In fact, shout out to Sister Evelyn Robinson, the queen mother of the city of Passaic, who's been, doing, been doing Kwanzaa probably since the 70s. I say, I say. Yes, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. So you begin to see that where folks are beginning to let go. In fact, my fiance, she basically, you know, she's doing more of let's do some kind of donation. You know, if we're going to celebrate it, let's start looking at donating time you know, homeless centers donating as opposed to just simply kind of like the grab. Interesting, you mentioned, because you. I also teach 
education, educational foundations. That's what I teach at Montclair. Oh, okay. And I know you all were talking about the jailbreaking of, you know, pretty much of, of the university. Yes, and sir. That the educational system is failing. But I always I tell my students that no, the educational system is perfect and is designed to do exactly what it was designed to do. That is true, brother. It it it, it doesn't miss its mark. But one Marvin, of the questions I have to ask you is that um one of the, the conversation about independent black schools, I mean, you know a plethora about that and various new platforms after this COVID. But one of the things that Bob Law used to always talk about is this. He said that as we're creating these independent black schools, there are going to be plenty of our children that are not going to be in those schools as we're making the transition. That's so the right. question I have is that what do we do for those as we're jailbreaking for those kids that are going to still be our children are still going to be locked in those institutions? Marvin. First of all, thank you, Michelle, and thank you for. And I say thank you as a as a as a fellow craft, as they may say in the Prince Hall Masons, as someone who is shoulder to shoulder with you, uh, you know, Professor Hunter and myself, Karen and I and you and so many of us are educators facing this question. And when you say that. Bob Law, and I think about that. I mean, I lived in Jersey City, and you know, I, I'd be up listening to Bob Law before I get on a train to go into World Trade Center back in, oh my God, it's so many years ago now, 89, I guess it was. The idea, what you just what you just said in terms of the observation Bob Law made is something that Jacob Carruthers, I never forget, we were at the Community College of Philadelphia. This would have been in the early 90s and there was a meeting of the board of education of people board of education for people of african ancestry uh national board of education people of african ancestry and people and uh sister adelaide uh adelaide sanford who i know you know uh the, the great nonagenarian now uh once uh new york state regent began as an elementary school principal if remember certainly correctly we went to egypt together in fact about 10 years ago um Dr. Carruthers said, while we are engaged in the struggle for African-centered education, and then we did, we named a few of them, you know, some of the great African-centered schools there, uh, Newark, New York, we talked about the East. I mean, there's so many other schools, right? Um, and then the struggle that we have uh, with the idea that we must put a floor under quality public education, which means everything from the bottom up. But then the struggle with these, uh, these financiers, like the ones who tried to play God in Newark. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, for example, I mean, the whole thing that is written up in the New Yorker and eventually became a book when Cory Booker was mayor. Um, the struggle that some of our African center institutions, if you remember the history of the uh, Council of Independent uh, Black Institutions, uh, CB, there was a lot of discussion, argument, you know, decisions to go different directions over the issue of charter schools, which are public schools. Do, do African center schools take the money and go on and kind of use it? I mean, in Philadelphia, for example, we have Sankofa Freedom Academy, uh, Mama Dr. Aisha Imani, uh, Sister Kelly Sparrow, you know, and us, we, you know, we'll take the money. But then some of the African center independent schools say, no, that's a compromise. We, we, we don't, we, we need to, you know, move in another direction. But Jacob Carruthers that night in Philadelphia, we were sitting there in the auditorium, he kind of gave opening remarks for the MBIPA meeting. And he said, you know, while we are fighting the fight for African-centered schools, we must never lose sight of the fact that the vast majority of our children are in the public schools. 
and they are beyond our institutional capacity and our reach at this moment. And I think finally what Karen has kind of laid out for us now and given us a glimpse of, and, and you picked up on it, uh, Marvin, this jailbreaking concept, what we're doing now, we can do. And we will only get better at, and, and as Karen said, roll out another level and keep going and expanding so that our young people going into the schools, even as we wage war for our tax dollars to change public education, for uh, for us to get into every form of education and transform from inside out, what we can stage our work, where we can stage our work is what we're doing now. As Cedric said, these young people are all over the technology. If we can pull them in, the young sister, as you said, who you know wanted to go prove you wrong, that's because you fired her imagination. So that her education was really taking place in many ways beyond what you were doing in the building. You touched her and then she went out and did. That's really what we were trying to do with the Philadelphia curriculum, still trying to do. Get young people to ask different questions and they will not be satisfied until they get different answers. And so I think you're modeling the way we begin it. And then when they come in the space, they have to be met by teachers with uh, that desire. Teachers like you, teachers like Karen and I trying to be, and so many others, Cedric, you know, can we then meet them where they are and use that momentum to wash away the world as it was? Because I'll say this one final thing. Uh, Naomi Klein has been doing some interesting writing, among many others, since this pandemic hit. She wrote something this summer I shared with my Freedom School students, with our Freedom School students, uh, on the Screen New Deal. Um, these cats are already lining up to try to monetize this, what, what she's called elsewhere, disaster capitalism. So, you know, technology in every home, and we got curriculum for you. We're going to, yeah, see, y'all ain't going to miss a trick. You can try to pay yourself to do, but we are, we're going to beat you to the spot, to use a little basketball language. And by the time you get to where we are, we're already going to be in jailbroken this. But this is the way we have to think now. This is our liberated zone, and we can use it to reverse engineer this stuff and perhaps uh, get beyond, get beyond where we were before this pandemic hit. Oh, what is one book you had translated into Portuguese? Oh, Sid asking about. Hey, Vicky. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, Sid wanted hey, to know. Sid, how are you, Dr. Carr? Oh, hold on, Dr. Uh, Vicky. I just uh, Sid didn't get to ask a question because we went off on that Brazil. Oh, no, he, he was informing us, yeah. <laughs> on that Brazilian tangent, which was yeah. important. But he wanted to know what was the best book to translate uh, Portuguese into Portuguese for Afro-Brazilian high school and college curriculum for or high school and college kids. It, you know, I mean, you, you know, when we went down, when we were there in 2005, we were there on a, for a curriculum. We were there for a week on a curriculum. Right. And the thing we saw was the deficit Cedric identified here in the United States. We know very little of Brazil was the deficit there with their young people. They knew very little. In fact, they, they showed us maps and they had Brazil, they had triangles going from Africa to Brazil and the Caribbean, and then back to Africa, the so-called triangle of enslavement. And it was nothing north of the Caribbean, not even the Florida Peninsula. So our job was to help connect those things. So a, a good basic history of African people in this country would be good, but I'm going to say instead for high school students, a book that actually 
we did when Cedric was uh and Cedric's being very modest. I mean, he basically Cedric made all the trains run on time for the freedom schools, trust me, and for the children's defense fund broadly before that. Uh, a book by Ayi Quay Arma, A-Y-I-K-W-E-I-A-R-M-A-H. His book, The Eloquence of the Scribes, which I usually keep a copy very close. I see it right there, but I'm not gonna pick it up. Uh, the eloquence of the scribes, uh, because that book names other books, but more importantly, it talks about the importance of that historical connection. And while uh, you pull in Dr. Vicky, I can just. Welcome to In Class. Hey, Dr. Vicky, you in DC, you down the street. Where are you yes, going? Dr. This is the book, <laughs> The Eloquence of the Scribes, a memoir on the sources and resources of African literature. That's the book. All right. Sorry. <laughs> um, How are Dr. you? Carr, I just wanted to um, ask you, um, candidates often uh, come and court uh, African-Americans for their vote. Um, yes. Until they are elected. And so Lord, clearly yes. we saw this past election that uh, African-Americans, we, we really rocked the boat for Biden. Um, so I'm wondering, how can we hold him accountable for uh, a valid African-American agenda? Um, many people say that that is lost. So how can we hold him accountable for an African-American agenda? And then, Dr. Carr, should we hold him accountable? Woo, that's the first of all. Let me ask you, uh, Dr. Vicky, are you a um, you native Washingtonian? Well, actually, I'm from Dallas, Texas. I'm uh, I'm actually a Dallas site. Husband uh, retired from the army, and that's how oh, we ended okay. up in this area. Dallas, okay, Dallas, Fort Worth, okay. My man Jacob Carruthers was from west of Dallas, uh, west of Waco, I think. One of them little towns. Y'all black, black, black down there. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I would say this. You know, I've had a lot of. Uh, what am I saying? Let me let me take I out. Take the first person. We've all, I'm sure, had really heart wrenching, soul wrenching arguments, conversations, passionate arguments about voting and not voting. You got these two Senate seats still up for grabs in, in Georgia as the white nationalists line up to vote Um, there about this Biden-Harris ticket and national politics and federal elections. Um, The general consensus that, you know, I think many people kind of organized around was this election was less about Biden-Harris than it was about trying to mute some of the forward thrust of open fascism in this country, represented by Trump, but Trump's the avatar for something else to the tune of 74 million who voted for him. And we're not out of the woods yet. In fact, the, the, the response to Biden-Harris is probably gonna be more virulent, which gets to the point, I think the heart of your question, should we push them? Of course, uh, there is no one strategy. I think we have to continue to organize and after the new year, when we finally get to Anna Arnold Hedgeman, one of the reasons why, you know, she's been somebody in my mind a lot is because it's right. It's really not ideological. It's it's OK. To, in fact, it's great to be right. It's great to be ideologically consistent and clear. But if that means that you've won a short term argument and people don't have unemployment insurance, as Karen said, or being evicted or, you know, arguing over pennies, 
then I'm not quite sure what that does for the person who is most in harm's way. So we had to do what we had to do initially to, to get, get us out of immediate harm's way now. So that's the should. Now, how do we do it? I think this isn't a question. I think we have to get out of the cycle of attempting to punish uh, known quantities at the ballot box. I think, uh, I mean, we've been talking the last several weeks here about, you know, the possibilities of the Department of Education. We talked about people with your name. Uh, my friend and former colleague at Howard, Leslie Fenwick, uh, the Dean Emeritus at the Howard School of uh, Education, who uh, came out of the Atlanta University Center, uh, one of the good colleagues of uh, my, my dear brother and ancestor Asa Hilliard. Uh, wasn't selected for the Secretary of Education. It looks like Biden is basically filling his cabinet on a demographic kind of balancing act, and which is what we expected. Now, are the policies of Biden-Harris administration going to be better than those of Trump-Pence or the White Nationalist Party? Absolutely. Is it going to be consistently better? No. Foreign policy is probably going to be damn near the same. In fact, it might be worse under Biden-Harris. So at that point, our our work has to be, it seems to me, to... Uh, force those who are engaged in uh, not electoral politics as much as those who surround them. I'm thinking about folks like uh, Karen and my friend, uh, Ajwa Batwe Azmoa, who uh, pushes these elected officials, uh, not, not as a lobbyist as much, but as an organizer. Um, and I think that organization work has to go from the outside in. I don't think it starts with the politicians and then the lobbyists that surround her or him. And then the people who get paid off of that and so forth. So it starts on the outside and then that transformation can work its way in so that and, it, and it, that won't be overnight. They're going to be losses. Um, we see, for example, finally, somebody like uh, Marsha Fudge. Is it better that she will be at HHS than the fool who was there before, even though he's the same background, you know, Ben Carson? Hell yeah, it's going to be a lot better. Should she have been at a Department of Agriculture like people were pushing for? Yes. However, it's good that she's in the cabinet and in her seat, you're probably going to see a more progressive person elected. If Nina Turner, who has declared that she's going to run, gets elected and she's run before in that district to the to the state Senate in Ohio. If Nina Turner comes to Congress, for example, if that were to happen, you're going to see someone who will move from a progressive, which is what, you know, uh, Congresswoman Fudge is, soon to be Secretary Fudge, to an even more progressive person. And then that's one more person there with Cori Bush, one more person there with Jamal Bowman, one more person there with uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar and us, um, Jared Paul, to begin to push. And uh, finally, I'll say that there's some issues we're going to have to work out with regard to the Black Seminoles and those of African descent who have been treated unfairly and badly, by the way, by the so-called five, some of the so-called five civilized tribes as it relates to rights, land rights, benefit rights in Indian country. However, because Deb Holland, like some other folks, co-signed on a bill which kind of abrogated their rights and she's going to have to be pushed on that. But I do think that uh, Joe Biden was going to pick somebody else to be the Secretary of the Interior if all the reports are correct and what I'm hearing formally and informally. But Deb Holland is going to be the Secretary of the Interior, a Native American, a First Nations woman. To go back to what Mike and we were talking about earlier about the question of Native Americans, the Bureau of Indian Affairs comes under the Department of the Interior. That happened, I think, because people from the outside in organized and said, nah, Joe, nah, Chief, nah, Scranton, you know, nah, Delaware. This seat here, 
you put Deb Holland in that seat. And I may be overstating the case, but I, if I am, I think only slightly. We have to keep the pressure up. We have to treat these people the way they need to be treated, like employees. We're not we're not voting for celebrities. These are tools. Right. That's right. Um, you said everything. So let me bring in <laughs> Mr. Cream, uh, which I, I'm curious about the origin of his name. Okay. Like I said, be ready. I think that's probably an African name. Is it? Because it means something else in English. Exactly. You know how black folks do. <laughs> can y'all hear me? Yes. yes okay, my audio is kind of choppy. Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, we good, brother. Karen say she wanna know where, where, where you get your name from. Third ward. Oh yes, sir. That's my uh my daddy's dad. His name is Oscar Cravon Rogers. So this is my uh papa's middle name. I love it. I love it. I love it. Third Ward. That's where um is that where Jack Yates is? Yes, sir. George Floyd. That's the that's the origin of Juneteenth in Houston, man. What's going on, brother? You, you, y'all go back. Y'all go back that far, huh? In Texas, in Houston. You said George Floyd. You know, with your grandfather. Oh yes, sir. He um through mostly. Uh, Jack Yates was in Third Ward and Phyllis Wheatley High Schools in Fifth Ward. So those main, those are mainly the two black schools in Houston, Texas. Yes, sir. My 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 Jagna, uh, Jacob Carruthers went to Phyllis Wheatley. So yeah, man, those are legendary names, Jack Yates and Phyllis Wheatley, brother. Yes, sir. What's going on, man? Not much. Right. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank y'all for welcoming me on the on the show. Oh no, man! We glad to be there. My 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 niece and nephew and brother and sister in law, mama down there in Houston. Uh, yeah. So you know, y'all take care, man. I see this damn plague is the uptick down there. Y'all be careful, man. Yes, sir. You know, it's part of the which area they live in. Uh, what's the name of that boys' high school? Oh, I see the name is Purple and something. Uh, they in one of those outlying areas. Anyway, it it had to I had to look it up. I don't even know where it is, man. <laughs> yes, sir. I just see him and he call on Facetime and I talk to him. You know, they all disembodied. Man, what you doing down there, man? So I'm a ISS monitor at a Sugarland Middle School. Sugarland, yeah, yes, yeah, that's where Tom Delay used to be. Okay. <laughs> you see, he got in trouble. He was in the United States Congress years ago. Oh no, they in Missouri City. Okay, yeah, that that's about ten minutes of each other. That's what I thought. Yeah, I thought maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same area. I had to look it up. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, so, oh wait. So, so, so now your duties include trying to keep the young people in line, huh? Yes, sir. What's the initial stand for? In, in school suspension. Oh yeah, I'm a graduate of in school suspension, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of your students back in the day. <laughs> what's what's your technique man you keep them in the, in the room try to keep them in the room i mean I, how do you work in how do you do it now man with this play going on i guess well um of course all the the desks are socially distanced so everybody has to keep damn y'all in the building yes sir how many you got in the room oh uh, no more than three at a time my god what's man how long you been doing it man this is my first year. You're kidding. First year. So you getting some teaching in on the slide while you're in there. Getting some teaching and learning while I'm teaching also. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Look, they say teachers doing God's work. You're doing God's work, brother. Are they, coming? are they coming to class? I mean, are they coming to the building? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. You okay. got about 
four or five hundred students in the building. Good lord. How many <laughs> how many y'all got how many ISS folk you got? Well, it varies on, on the daily. I might have one throughout the week. I might have two. It just depends on how the uh, students are acting from a day-to-day basis. I see. Yes, sir. That's serious work, man. Anyway, I know you I know you you came in to ask a question. I'm sorry. How many Karen, yes, don't get me. Go ahead, go ahead, bro. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kramer. <laughs> well, um, so I'm a re. I graduated from Morgan State on football scholarship in 2017. Oh, you a bear? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And um, after I graduated, I started doing a little more research on Black history. And uh, so my questions were: um, in 1965, the Department of Labor wrote a report titled "The Negro Family: The Case for National Action." Yep. And the opening statement for the for the first chapter is titled The Negro American Revolution. And the opening statement says the Negro American Revolution is rightly regarded as the most important domestic event of the post-war period in the United States. The American there have been few other events in our history. The American Revolution itself, the surge of Jacksonian democracy in the 1830s the abolitionist movement and the populist movement of the late 19th century are comparable to the current Negro movement. So my questions are, number one, why isn't the Negro American Revolution taught in HBCUs? Mm. And two, how do we get, uh, how do we get the message about the Negro American Revolution? How do we get it talked about along to coincide with the Black Lives Matter movement, if not even more? I'll do the second one first, Craymon. First of all, thank you, man. I think what we're doing now and those who are doing work like this is the way we do it most quickly. Do it most most quickly. The first question, how do we get it done in HBCUs? That's going to require a rethinking of the whole concept of HBCUs. W.E.B. Du Bois spent uh, the better part of 50 years in conversations, public addresses, many mostly commencement speeches, at HBCUs trying to argue for just this type of reconfiguration. Black colleges in many ways have become imitation white ones, um, kind of employment training, this kind of thing, very necessary work, but the idea of a culturally grounded curriculum is a bit of a challenge. And what you identified, which you know most people know as the, the Daniel Patrick Moynihan report. Um, and by the way, parenthetically, you know, if you get a chance, check out the, the recent documentary. It's a couple of books on uh, the professor and the president is one on Moynihan, the Johnson administration and subsequently Nixon and others. A um, couple of recent books on Moynihan, including one that came out on the uh, the 50th anniversary of the Moynihan report. But there's a documentary on Moynihan. It's a fascinating figure you know, himself. White dude came out of poverty, you know, working class, Irish. Very interesting guy who drew and was informed, drew on and was informed by, among others, some black social scientists, like a guy who was at Howard for many years, E. Franklin Frazier. So the, but the idea of the Negro Revolution wasn't something they that, that the government, on one hand, others was looking at with, uh, with joy and anticipation. It was something they were looking on with trepidation and fear. How are you going to manage this? Because really, during that period, like this is the period when Kwanzaa came into existence. I mean, you know, the Panthers are, are the, you know, you talk to some of those cats who are still around, you know, they would tell you those women and men, we thought the thing was about to go down. In other words, the revolution was here. The revolution has come, as the Panthers used to sing. The revolution has come. 
off the pig. Time to pick up the gun. Off the pig. No, it was here. So they weren't looking at it like this is a good thing. They look, how do we manage this? I think part of that work that came out of the 60s going forward, there was a struggle at HBCUs. There was a struggle that students demanded black curriculum. It happened at different places around the country. It certainly happened at Howard, 1967, 1968. Uh, Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen at the time, undergraduates at Howard, were part of that movement. They want a black curriculum. It, 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 it sparked the, what they call now the black studies movement. However, what has happened in the 50 years since, plus years since, is that two things. Black studies has become, at the university level, black and white. And there are very few HBCUs with black studies programs. Howard is one. It has become a place for the kind of disembodied study of blacks. It isn't really black studies as it was imagined. There's a distinction between black studies and studying black stuff. It's become a place where people kind of do career work, career advancement work. You know, they talk and write and go and go to confer and this kind of thing. So that's one thing. And the other thing is the curriculum wasn't transformed. So what you see at HBCUs now is almost in some ways the same kind of trajectory that sparked student unrest in the 1920s. In the 1880s and 90s, at places like Tuskegee and at places like, well, not Tuskegee, as well, Tuskegee too. Yeah, absolutely. Tuskegee and Hampton, where students said, I came here to get education and y'all talking about painting and nails and, 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 and praying and I need something more empowering. And then in the 1920s, you see a revolt. And then in the 1960s, you see a rebellion. And then in the 1980s, you see something happen. And so here we are in the 2020s and students are coming and as Cedric was talking about in Brazil, this rising swell of consciousness, there are elements of that now. So when you start talking about the Black Lives finally, the Black Lives Matter movement and connecting it to the question of revolution that so scared the hell out of the federal government and a lot of other people in the 60s, I think the place to engender that type of study and connection and institution building is outside those formal structures. And the more we do work like this, the more students like Brother Marvin's student who went home to do work and came back, the more those students will move into those institutions and do what every generation of students has done when it comes to transforming learning spaces, which is transform those spaces by demanding a different type of education. We just had to be prepared for them. But I think it starts with this kind of work because this is the work that we do with our time. This is how we spend that time, I think. Thank you, brother. Yes, thank you. Uh... Well, yeah, this is the, the one class. I'm usually only doing two or three questions, but because it's the last one. Yeah, oh yeah, no question. We got a lot more in, and thank you again, Michael Harriot, for jumping in. Mike, man. It's crazy. Uh, let's welcome Antoinette from Columbus, Ohio. Where's my sister? Hey, bro. Antoinette. <laughs> <laughs> Here, you got People think this is a plan. This ain't plan. Y'all know each other? Yes. From way back. Yes, Amargani. Oh, and Dame Asante Amargani. No, no, no. During Kwanzaa, we don't say that. We say Umoja. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to see y'all Friday. Hey, Antoinette, tell them about Tawi Village and the African Center. What's going on in Columbus? What y'all doing? Oh, bruh. Look. Sister Karen told me to make it brief. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Hey, I just want y'all to know, Columbus, Ohio, is, is where all you people writing books now about black revolutionaries. 
These are the Negroes that would bring Queen Mother of the Year to Columbus, Ohio for her birthday. So you can write about it or you can be about. This sister right here, I love you so much. I'm sorry, sis. Go ahead. I know. Can't we? I know we got around. Go ahead. (laughs) I I had some the indigo, but no, no, no. Please talk more on Freedom's Eve. Um, I mean, cause cause it's it needs to really be told. Right now, we're going in the 158th year. And the Gucci Gullah community, the, the Gucci Gullah, the Gullah Gucci community in South Carolina in the four quarters, they are really trying to involve the young people. Yes. In carrying on that tradition. What's the um, sister's name? Uh, I just got all of her books. She's with the Gullah Gucci Nation. Right. Oh, her name. Oh, I just got about six of her books a couple of months ago. She was at a car. Anyway, go ahead. What, are you working with them? Um, I'm trying to. Um, I went to a Zoom conference they did this week. Oh, wonderful. So they are trying to, like I said, they're, they're talking about the four quarters, which is, uh, what is it, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia. Mm-hmm. So again, they want to bring this to the young people. But for me, it's a whole lot of older folks that don't know. So for me, how can we teach the young if the older don't know, older people don't know? Well, but, why don't you talk about it a little bit? Me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, what what I know is yeah. that the Freedom's Eve, our ancestors were in the praise houses, hiding in the woods, you know, waiting to hear the stroke of midnight that they were free. This is December 31st, 1862. That's and right. that was only for the Confederate States. Right. Um, and there, there's this one song. I wish I knew her name. It's a beautiful song. It's called Watchmen. It's a, a call and response. Mm-hmm. In the Carolinas, how they practice it, especially with the with the Geechee Gullah, is they start at a quarter till 12. Come on now. And there's someone, there's, there's generally a man who sings the song, Watchman, Watchman, can you tell me what time of the night it is? And he'll come back and say like 10 minutes to 12, you know? So they're doing it like either every five minutes, every 10 minutes. And, and, and oh, Mother Emmanuel's church, they do it in the dark. Oh, no question. Someone with a ladder. A come ladder. on now. Come on now. Look, and brother, they in all four corners, north, south, east, and west. Come on now. You talking about so, Mother Emmanuel in, 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 in South Carolina. Right, where where they had the massacre. That's right. The, for where, 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 where Brother Say got married. We pulled a lot of the, the mother church of the AME. And in fact, the second yeah. bishop of the AME church is buried in Philly in part because they banned Morris Brown and them Negroes from coming back to South Carolina after that rebellion. That's right. Oh, my goodness. No, but it's, it's for, for me, most people don't know why we celebrate Watch Night. That watch night part, that's from the white folks. Mm-hmm. For, for, for us, for us, we are there because the ancestors were praying because it was sketchy on that's whether right. Lincoln was going to sign or not. Lerone Bennett said when he signed, his hand was shaking the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> he writes know, that in his book, Force into Glory. Lerone said his hand was shaking. Amen. Well, you know, Tony, I would say that um, the the question of Freedom's Eve, as we were talking about, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because 
you know this from years of you know doing Kwanzaa. You know, one of the things, in fact, the first Kwanzaa that they had in 66, you know, they stayed past midnight because, of course, the seventh day of Kwanzaa is the first of January, Imani. Right. right? You, so they went, they went past midnight and then stayed up all night partying. And I don't know when you were a little girl. I know when, when we were children, my mother, Catherine Carr, on the 31st of December, we were at Cane Avenue Missionary Baptist Church. Yep. Every and year, every, every year. year. And then, and, and of course, they would have all kind of food. They would have all kind, and we would be in there praying, everybody testifying. And then midnight, we do the prayer. And then the rest of the night, we fellowshipping. Yeah. But it took me being an adult. And all those nights, we would be there in the storefront on East Livingston, standing at the African Center for Study and Worship, wow. out Mariba Kelsey, Mama Nandi, Romani, and all Being there, it took me being an adult to, to, to begin to learn of what you're talking about, which is, you know, particularly in the North, yeah. uh, particularly in the North, those churches like like the mother church of the AME, of mm -hmm. course, which is Bethel in Philly, uh, the AME Zion Church, and somebody who was Harry Thomas Church in New York, place like Baltimore. The watch night, as you said, they were there because Lincoln gave, as you said, as you know, gave the North, gave the South, gave those Confederate yeah. states four months to rejoin the Union. Yeah. He told them, look, that's what the emancipation says. He signs it in September. He says, those who are in rebellion to the United States, January 1st, the people are free. First of all, you can't free nobody because they're going to have to free themselves because they're going to have to make that stand up. So, but second of all, places like Maryland, which were not in rebellion, my own state of Tennessee, which were not in rebellion, that had Africans enslaved, Delaware, where Richard and Sarah Allen escaped to get to Philly, those states, as you said, as you know, as you said, are were not covered by the emancipation. But so Africans there had to wait on the end of the Civil War and the 15th Amendment. Oh, I'm sorry, the 15th, the 13th Amendment. Those watch nights in those places where Africans were not legally enslaved kind of set the template. And in the South, whether it be the Hush Harbors, where word had spread. Now, Mike, this goes back to the very beginning. We were talking, Karen, and we, we were coming to, a, to an end, but when, when Mike Harriet was talking, Mike's people are South Carolinians. The history of South Carolina. South Carolina is one of the first states the Union Army hits hard. Virginia, South Carolina, you know, my, my, my sister, uh, Kalita uh, Nichols Fairfax in, South, in Virginia, as they're slamming into those states as early as 1861, You've got Africans who are aware of this war, who are defecting, who are leaving the enemy lines. In fact, that's why this book is so important, Yuletide and Dixie. These slave man's like, Christmas time, it's going to be a damn slave rebellion down here. They terrify the Christmas and black people. But so they know about the Emancipation Proclamation, many of them, 62, fall 62. They are praying. They are in community and it isn't because they think abraham lincoln coming riding down on a white horse even though many of them called him father abraham that's not to diminish the fact that they they venerated lincoln many of them but many more of them understood that this was the moment to go back to the great historian the brother who you know i didn't know him well but i got a chance to spend some time with him and his wife both now ancestors rosemary his, his wife vincent harding if you read his book there is a river these Negroes, man, or 
The Great Chance the Williams's novel, Have You Been to the River, where he's kind of talking about this. They put a spiritual floor, a spiritual floor under the all out physical war for liberation that this country and the social structure calls the Civil War. And Freedom's Eve, so to speak, becomes that day. I'll end with this. January 1st, that's why January 1st became known around the country as Emancipation Day. It was a brother from Georgia named Silas X. Floyd. I was just telling my freedom school students about Silas Floyd. Silas X. Floyd was a preacher. Silas X. Floyd came out of enslavement. Silas X. Floyd and his church, like churches all over this country, celebrated, black churches celebrated Emancipation Day. January 1st. It wasn't July 4th. wasn't even Juneteenth. It was Emancipation Day before the end of the Civil War. January 1st. And Silas X. Floyd once famously said, may God forget my people if we forget this day. So, Tony, when you talk about Freedom's Eve and somebody say, I didn't know what that was. Silas X. Floyd, that ancestor is smiling because for a minute there, we forgot. And it's no accident that January 1st, Emancipation Day, is also January 1st, Imani, Faith, the last day of Kwanzaa. And you sewed it up with a nice bow. Listen, um, I think that's the perfect place to end. Let me thank all of the people who came in to ask a question. Everybody that's in this room, hit the like, the thumbs up button. Which yeah. will, not be a, will not be an issue uh, really soon. We won't no. care about algorithms. We won't care about clicks. We won't care about likes. Yes. We're just going to be caring about this work. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Carr. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Professor Oh, um, I, I got to shout out my people. I, I I don't wear this shirt a lot. What this is that? This is the last day of the year. This is my uh, Comedic Institute. They don't just get these out. You can't buy one of these. Yeah, you, you want to know where they get your sweatshirts. I'm like years of collection. You can't no, well, buy these. No, <laughs> I ain't got to wear dash dashikis and slacks. I ain't had hard shoes on in in seven months. So I, don't know I could just go wear the stuff I would normally wear. So, uh, oh no, thank Karen. I want at the end, of, this is the end of the year. And on behalf, not just of me, but of everybody, all the people who are emailing, all the people who are watching, thank you, sis, because you know, this is something we're doing together. We're all in. Today was another step in it. But this came out of your mind. This started with a, hold on for a minute. You know what? Uh, I'm, you, all right, I'm going to record this. And here we are. So thank you, sis. Thank you for your genius, your creative spirit, your drive, your determination to help free us and all the ancestors that flow through your veins and empty out into bringing us together. This is what it looks like. And I'm grateful for you. I know we yeah, are. I mean, I see the possibilities every day I get up and I know, you know, we are already there. We just need to step into it. So yeah. we just need the spaces to step into it. And for everybody that is creating spaces, step into it. There's no competition. You know, this notion that, you know, Tim Reed is doing a platform. And I'm like, oh, that's just like what I'm doing. And I want to celebrate his platform and support it. No question. Because we have the capacity. We have, we come from abundance as we talk about the harvest. People of abundance. Yes. Come from lack. So let's stop having a lack mentality that if somebody else is doing it, somehow that's competition. No, that's celebration. That right. somebody is doing it, let's support because it's a big world and we all can eat because we come from abundance. That's so cool. as we head into this new year, let's remind ourselves who we are, where we came from, and that we are already free. 
Now let's get busy. Mm. I'm going to let that resonate. I love you. Thank you. I needed to hear. I'm going to let that resonate the rest of the day. All right. Bye, everybody. Happy New Year. (laughs) Happy New Year.